Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hi there, it's Podcast Winterfell, episode 226, where this week we are once again covering spoiler-free news for our TV-only people, and we are in week 24 of our tandem read of George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons for our book people. My name is Matt Murdick, I am from PodcastWinterfell.com, that's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast, all social media, contact, and podcatcher links as well. And I would love it if you would take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher so that I can thank you right here in this space that I'm about to leave where there's no one to thank. What? No one to thank? Well, you all have been very kind with reviews and everything, and I really appreciate it. But I can't ever not ask for more because I'm greedy that way. And uh, if you do have time, please leave a written review on iTunes and Stitcher. It's very much appreciated. It helps me keep noticeable among, you know, great Game of Thrones podcasts, such as the Joffrey of Podcasts, whose host is joining me right now. His name is Bubba. Bubba, how are you? Are we done reading this dang tandem read yet, Matt? Uh, How much longer? How much? Please tell me we're going to be done with these books soon. Three weeks after this one, brother, then we're done. Three weeks. Oh, jeez. Can you give me three more weeks? That's all I ask. It's three more weeks. I know I'm beating you like, you know, like a a a a bastard in Westeros, but really, just three more weeks. Please and please. Actually, I'm having a lot of fun with it. So uh, three more weeks, and then the show will be with us, and we can finally have some fun. Right on, right on. And uh, also joining us, uh, he is uh, a brewer of beer that is served at the wall. We welcome back Mr. Mike Hall from the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour. How are you, brother? I'm doing great, man. I got a black beer. I'm ready to go to the wall. Let's do it. Excellent. I need some fried bread. Some bread fried in bacon grease, right? I need fried bread to go with my black beer. That is true. That is true. You do need that. Uh, We do want to remind anybody in our chat room who is a TV-only person that after we get through our news, you're going to want to excuse yourself for our book section because we don't want to spoil you about anything that may or may not happen in Season 5 of Game of Thrones. Also, regarding Season 5 of Game of Thrones for you NBRs, I'm going to, on April 6th, which is the Monday before uh, Season 5 begins, uh, I'm having a special fan call-in show where anyone can call in it's pretty easy. You dial 744. Uh, what is the number here? Anybody know? I don't ever dial the number anymore. It's 724-444-7444. Uh, hey, dial that number and then ask for the, uh, when asked for a pin, dial 118884 and the pound sign. And then uh, if you're not a TalkShoe member, just dial 1 and pound and you'll be added on as a guest. And I will take your call on Monday, April 6th uh, at a time that is posted at the website in order to uh, 
see what your thoughts or expectations or predictions for season five shall be. And we'll keep it, again, uh, we'll keep it TV only friendly. So uh, just keep that in mind if you call in. But looking forward to hear what your thoughts are, and that'll get us all in the mode for talking about Game of Thrones each Monday night after a new episode airs, which I believe we will do at 10 p.m. Eastern time uh, each Monday evening. But uh, I'll get back to you on that one. In the meantime, it's time to talk about the news. And uh, a tweet uh, which I got last week from our buddy Glenn Ewing, uh, directing me to a Variety.com article, which is now featured also at WinnerComing.net and uh, WatchersOnTheWall.com. HBO's eagerly awaited fourth season set of uh, Game of Thrones uh, in terms of the box set season four debuted at number one on the national home sale videos charts uh, for the week ending February 22nd. 54, as they don't have a numbers breakdown specifically, but they can tell you that 54% of the Game of Thrones sales in the first week came for Blu-ray, and of course the other portion for DVD. So it was slightly preferred over the DVD. Because you get extras, like histories and lore, and, and in-episode guides, and uh, everybody's got a PlayStation now, right? So you just play it on that. Uh, next item of news, Jesse Leach of Kill Switch Engage. This is Mike's favorite subject. Talked about uh, <laughs> Kill Switch Engage's contribution to Game of Thrones mixtape. Uh, their tune is titled Loyalty, and it's dedicated to House Martell. Um, the chorus features the Martell words unbowed, unbent, and unbroken. But Leach says his contribution was kind of coming from a blind spot, saying, quote, while I was writing the song, I didn't really know what I was talking about. But the producers give you a concept, they give you the keywords that you should use, and, a, and sort of give you a storyline. And it was fun for me to work in that capacity because I'm used to just coming up with stuff on my own on the spot. Uh, and they had a lot of cool trigger words, so it was interesting to see that come together. Uh, also, you can hear a snippet of, the, uh, of that particular tune, that particular version uh, at both WintersComing.net or WatchersOnTheWall.com. It is one of those, what is that site? I don't remember the name of it now. God, I'm just I'm sick, so I'm just having trouble. I'm reaching for things. Um, SoundCloud. It is a, it's, it's on a SoundCloud somewhere, so you can check it out that way. Um, I don't know. Mike, did you listen to the snippet of it? No, I didn't. Okay, look, this this is exactly the issue. If it's without getting into the relative qualities of kill switch engage, uh, this when you have somebody who openly says like I didn't even know what I was talking about. They gave me some keywords, whatever. I wrote my own stupid story around them. Like that's not satisfying to me. You know, I would rather have one record by somebody who's read all the books than, you know, uh, by like a record by one person who's read all the books and a bunch of bands who have no idea what they're talking about. At least if you watch the show, like, you don't even have to read the books. If you watch the show, you know who the Martells are, you know. So right. that, anyway. Yeah. I'm going to listen now. I have to. I've complained so much about it. I'm going to have to engage with it. Unbound, unbent, unbroken. All right. <laughs> So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that. That's probably all the snippet you need. Uh, Bubba, did you listen to it? 
Uh, to be honest, I haven't. And if it sounded anything like what Michael was singing, uh, never let me listen to it. No, that was me singing, actually. Oh, that was me. oh sorry. Yeah, yeah, so, sorry, then, uh, then Michael, hang up on Matt. Whoops. I mean, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yes. Yeah, everybody should hang up on me when I start singing. I'm not a singer. Uh, after the success in the States last month, uh, the upscaled, remastered IMAX version of the last two episodes of Season 4, Watchers on the Wall and the Children, made their way to a UK venue on Thursday, February 26th. Sorry, we didn't have this information for you folks last week in the UK. You might have been able to score some tickets. Um, the occasion of this IMAX screening was the Game of Thrones outside North America, uh, of this first screening of Game of Thrones outside North America, uh, was the opening of a new 11-screen cinema in the Milton Keynes, uh, which is to the northwest of London, as everybody from England now and the UK throws their iPhone across the room because I mispronounced Milton Keynes. I don't know if that's how you say his name or not. Uh, Anyway, uh, so uh, a new theater, and you get the production of Game of Thrones. And and, uh, following the popularity of their In Memoriam video from after season three, HBO has published a Game of Thrones In Memoriam last week. It's a small book dedicated to the characters from the show who've uh, perished on screen 1495 in the United States, $9.99, uh, 9.99 uh, pounds in the UK. And I uh, wouldn't even think about purchasing that myself personally, but uh, did it catch anybody's eye to the point where they might want to in, amongst our panel here? I'm going to jump in and say no. How much money does HBO need from me? I mean, I've opened my wallet. I've done so much. Uh, a book remembering the people that the show is mistakenly killed like King Joffrey, they'd have to pay me to read that. (laughs) (laughs) Any interest in that at all, Mike? Uh, No, I think I'm satiated when we pour one out. I think that does it for me. Yeah, pouring one out is enough, and Bubba always makes sure to have us pour one out at the proper time. Of course, we're still pouring out one for poor King Joffrey. Uh, We'll never stop pouring one out for that one. Um, speaking of uh, actors and, and in memoriams and all of this other stuff, um, you may have noticed that recently uh, the whole acting gang is coming out with uh, little promos either for their other projects or whatever, and they're starting to talk about Season 5 of Game of Thrones. So for you NBRs that want to remain completely spoiler-free, let me just warn you, Please be very careful reading articles uh, or interviews with the, and most of them are, they keep things pretty tight lipped because they, they're bound by contract too. But, you know, depending on what your level of spoiler or, uh, hate is, then you might want to avoid uh, interviews about with Aiden Gillen or Jonathan Price or Maisie Williams. Um, in addition to Sophie Turner, Natalie Dormer, or just about everybody's been talking about Game of Thrones season five this week. It's starting to get uh, it's starting to get on the media train. So be careful as you look over those articles at WinnersComing.net and Watchers on the Wall. Most of them have spoiler lines before anything is actually talked about, so you can read the introductions um, and see you know nice pretty pictures to see what kind of dress they're wearing or whatever. But other than that. 
um, not much in the way of uh, to report. We're certainly not going to talk about it here unless somebody wants to talk about it in the book section. Speaking of which, there's another couple of items that I'll, I'll just uh, tease a little bit here for our book section as well. At makinggameofthrones.com, a new video was released as well. It's a two-minute feature about the weapons of Dorne. Um, and again, that video is pretty spoilery in terms of showing footage uh, of some rehearsals of things that were filmed for Season 5. So again, spoiler-sensitive people, you may not want to see that video, but we will talk about that in our book section. As well, um, the Raven brought the final two visions, or supposedly the final two visions, uh, to mobile devices last Thursday, and uh, Game of Thrones actually released them on their official YouTube as well. And these, as opposed to just little fleeting images, were full scenes or snippets of scenes uh, with characters, one being John, one being Brienne. And we'll talk more about them in the book section. But um, if you really want to see them, you can go to the Game of Thrones official YouTube uh, to watch them. If you don't, then you really want to avoid those particular videos. Um, other than that... Uh, unless anybody else has something to contribute to the news section. Anybody? Well, I, was, I was just going to say, uh, and this isn't to talk about the content of them at all, but it seemed like the new Visions had a different kind of uh, look than the show does. And did that to you just, it just seemed good to kind of match visually how the other Visions had gone, or do you think that indicates some sort of a different style for the actual episodes. No, I think there was a lot of color grading and a lot of uh, uh, kind of blurriness on the edges to, to kind of simulate this, the site. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. It just seemed to be, you know, more extreme. Like, I, I guess, you know, they didn't, I guess they just didn't change that because that was consistent throughout the visions. Right. Um, you know, so I wondered if keeping it once you go into these longer snippets would indicate anything for the future. But I guess not, huh? It's just part of the vision cycle. That I think that's what it's supposed to represent. But I could be wrong. Bubba, do you have an opinion on that? No, I think you nailed it. I think they're trying to give it, you know, like, a, you know, it was almost blurry and kind of darkened around the edges. Like, this is something, you know, you're seeing with your one eye, <laughs> your mystic eye. A mystic vision, and so yeah. I, to be honest, uh, you know, I guess we don't want to talk too much about the content here in the NBR section. But I wish the visions had always been like this. Uh, they were very slight. I honestly don't think they really have big spoilers at all. But the fact that there's a lot to them, I, I liked better. Yeah, I agree with that too. Um, I just uh, the only thing I would caution again is. Um, some of the things that are said and some some of the uh, characters that you see in a couple of these visions, um, if you don't have any idea what's going on, you might want to avoid them. But, uh, you know, we'll talk more about that in the, at the beginning of the book section. So if you uh, if you want to uh, if you want to stick around for that, then you proceed at your own risk. Also, uh, lots of I mean, really interesting uh looking weapons uh, in the other one, in the making a Game of Thrones one. But uh, again, I, I would caution that if you want to be completely spoiler-free, you would want to avoid that. And with that, that's going to conclude our, our spoiler-free news for you non-book readers, for you NBRs. We really appreciate you coming out and listening each week. Don't forget to leave me a review on iTunes. And Bubba, 
how can people contact you on the interwebs to talk about Game of Thrones, the TV series? No, you can always tell me how great I am on Twitter, at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M. Fit and Trim on Twitter. I'm waiting to get another follower. That's just ridiculous. I've gotten like 10 in the last week, probably. You should have gotten at least one of those. Why do you always try to make me cry, Matt? Salt in the wound, salt in the wound, baby. And uh, Mike, how about you? Uh, can you uh, can you kindly spell your Twitter handle for people as well? Uh, yeah, I am at this column film, F-I-F-T-H-C-O-L-U-M-N-F-I-L-M. And uh, I actually had an interesting conversation with uh, at Dennis Hoxie. I hope I'm saying that right. H-O-X-E-Y. Uh, I had an interesting conversation with him on Twitter this week saying that he had just caught up to the um, season four podcast Winterfell and he heard you and I talking about whether or not I should read the books. You know, because uh-huh. you and I had this whole conversation where I was like, I don't know, I'm thinking about it, but then again, you know, the Red Wedding was really surprising, you know, and I think I talked about the um, the Mountain and the Viper also as being, you know, something that I was really happy to be in NBR when those things came on. Uh, so he had heard that conversation between us and then, uh, you know, uh, contacted me on Twitter to ask kind of what was the deciding factor, you know. So it was great to, to kind of be reminded of that time, you know, and have that conversation today or uh, earlier this week. That was cool. Yeah. I told him that I do not regret reading the books. Oh, nice, nice. And you're you're now uh, four and three quarters of a book of the way through. So uh, <laughs> then you'll be in, in the uh, spot where you can reread Game of Thrones with us next year, which I, I recorded a, a special on, uh, also coming up this week, folks, a special on the uh, season four Blu-rays we'll be dropping this weekend where I have Axel Foley and, and uh, I think we've we've decided now that Heath Snow is an ABR, which is uh, I believe Axel called him an amnesiatic book reader. Um, so ABR uh, Heath Snow, we talked about the season four Blu-rays, and you'll get that this weekend. But Axel, we might have Axel joining us for the Game of Thrones read next year. Maybe I don't know. I think he's still on the fence about that. Well, one thing that I didn't say that is something that you told me, you know, because I didn't start reading until after the end of season four. And one thing that I didn't say that I should have, I think, is that I feel like, and you told me this, I feel like you can pretty much read the first three books and be, and not, you know, and still be spoiler free as far as the show goes. Is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? Well, you would want, you would want to be careful about the, uh, there's stuff that happens in the end of those John and Samuel chapters in book three that technically hasn't happened in the show yet. And you do so I wonder, guess maybe you do wonder about you the can... epilogue and Lady Stoneheart. Maybe that's okay, maybe it's not. Right, right. So maybe if if you, if you like after season five, we'll see obviously, but speculatively speaking, after season five, you should be able to go through the first three books and still be totally spoiler free. It's, you know, it's, if that's the only thing that's left, then that's at least possible. Probably oh, so. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. Um, okay. Cool. Right on. Yeah. So Axel, you're safe to read book one. And uh, hey, Axel, why don't you tell me how these fine folks can contact me? 
Okay. Folks are in the book section, so I don't see anybody in the chat room that I don't recognize as a non-book reader. Let me just undo this guy here and see what this is. Arizona is calling. Hello, who are we talking to here? No, they hung up. Well, I guess I foiled that. Um, All right, so on to the book section. Okay, folks, we are now in the book section here, and I hope that uh, you are, if you're wanting to remain spoiler-free, you have uh, decided to turn the podcast off now, like right now. And, Bubba, I'm going to go to you real quick. Uh, Let's start with the making of Game of Thrones video, uh, which featured our friends the Sand Snakes and their weapons, as well as Arya Hotah's snake uh, axe, which looked awesome to me. What, what were your impressions of the of the weapons themselves? Well, I'm going to maybe lose my man card on this. Those weapons don't—they don't impress. You know, I didn't care too much about them. I was much more interested in the actors and their costumes. And uh, you know, I know some people people don't like our sexist talks, but those Sand Snakes look pretty good. Hopefully that's a nice way to say it. So yeah, that's what excited me about it. Once again, it just means we're getting closer. It does mean we're getting closer. And um, I, I thought that the artistry of those uh, of those particular weapons were, were fantastic. Mike, did you see the video? Any comments? Yeah, I mean, the, the sand snake weapons were cool, but Ario Hotaz blade, I mean, the you know, the little sunburst gem that like sticks out from the edge of the, that was badass. <laughs> I mean, that was really like, and I don't know if that, I, you know, that was, I really liked Ariel Hotaz, uh staff. I was glad that, that uh, you sent that to me because I wouldn't have noticed it otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. That was fantastic. Um, I, I have no idea what the context of the shot is that was being rehearsed um, and who that was that they were showing where they were rehearsing like uh, Ario putting in, putting the edge of that axe to someone's neck uh, and them kind of sticking it let's, out as they were blocking it. Do we want to talk about that or not? Let, let's pour one out for uh, Braun. That's, that's what it seemed like to me. That's exactly what it seemed but like to me. But it could be that he you know, gets a, get, brings his axe down and stops just short. You never know. Uh, that could be too. That could be too. I hope. I hope that's not the end of Braun. I sincerely do. Uh, we have heard, you know, all these kinds of rumors, and even Axel uh, happened across an article on the internet, and we've talked about it here about, you know, lots of characters dying who haven't died in the books, possibly this season. Um, should we worry about Braun now that we've seen that shot? Uh, well, I, he was on our crazy list we had a while ago, where we tried to come up with all the. Uh, book characters still alive who the show might just uh, trim some actor salary. And so, uh, you know what I would say? It's 50-50. Roll, roll, roll a, a two side, flip a coin, actually, since there are just two of them who it could be, and uh, let's see what happens. Snake eyes or sevens, Mike? <laughs> I don't think Braun's got much of a chance. He's been a he's been a swagger and smart guy, but the thing about killing Braun is that that's another step to putting Tyrion really at his absolute end, you know. Because as long as Braun's alive, Tyrion might be able to talk him back into something, and he no. had a little more of like a, a place in the books than he did in the show. So I feel like killing Braun's probably a safe bet. 
if if it'll hurt evil Uncle Tyrion, let's roll. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, and uh, if is there anything else to comment on that, or do you want to move on to the ravens, guys? Yeah, let's go to these sites. You know, uh, actual dialogue, actual little scenes. I think this is kind of what we all hoped for, or at least longer visions than we had before. Absolutely. And uh, first, I guess we should talk John and Mance. Uh, and John is talking to Mance about how he brought the the clans together and about pride, more or less. Um, do, I'm going to speculate that this is a conversation about bringing more wildlings to the other side of the wall, um, or maybe about, you know, uh, getting people to kneel to Stannis. Because um, we haven't really gotten that um, from from the books or from the TV show yet that we have read in the books in terms of um, really all of the wildlings kind of coming before Stannis, right? Yeah, which is another thing which kind of happens at the end of the third book a bit and then definitely at the beginning of this tandem read we've done. So it feels like uh, John saying, listen, your pride, you know, you know, it's just your pride that won't allow you to kneel, a.k.a. won't allow you to give the sign to all the followers. This is cool. Let's get on the other side of this wall. Do you think, Mike, that this could be a, a trigger point to where we could see a, uh, a, 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 as we've read in these books, a faux sacrifice of mints? I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I wonder, are, do you really think they're going to do the whole thing with the Lord of Bones and the skin changing? And I mean, are they going to include that in the show? I don't think so. I, I mean, it's it's hard to view from just the trailer, but it looks like the Lord of Bones is up at Hardhome, which, uh, once true. again, if you put things together, according to the Day in the Life thing, doesn't look like it would hit earliest until Episode 7 or 8, so... You know, I mean, we're going off clues. There's no way to say yes or no. But if I had to guess, I'd say uh, no, that uh, Bernie – Mance is definitely – there's a stake there in the one shot from the trailer where you see everybody, and then Mance is surrounded by guards as if he's going to go up on the stake. But uh, I wouldn't imagine uh, the uh, – I wouldn't imagine the Lord of Bones part of that will happen. Mm, very interesting. On the other hand, if they have decided to do that, they've clearly set the president. Uh, precedent for glamoring uh, with the whole Jock and Hagar switch at the end of season two, right, with Arya? True, but it feels like, you know, you don't, I mean, this sounds silly, you know, to talk about magic things, but it it would, to me, you'd want to keep your magics kind of separate and straight. Okay. Sounds straight. Sounds good to me. Uh, anything else about the, the John and Mance talk? Does anybody have that? Well, I just love the actor who uh, Kieran Hines, who plays Mance, and so please more. He was in the one episode last season. We need more, more, more. Yeah, we do. I agree with you there. Um, let's go to Brienne and Podrick then, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase what she said, but I think it was more or less to the effect of, "I don't want anyone following me. I'm not a leader. All I ever wanted was to fight for a lord I believe in. The good lords are dead, and the the rest are monsters." Um, I have no idea what the context of that line is or anything, but I've seen a lot of theories online. Uh, you, we've been having this whole Lady Stoneheart discussion, and, and it, it almost seems like, um, even though there hasn't been any mention of any other actors playing the Brotherhood without banners, 
there are people out there theorizing that maybe she would take the Lady Stoneheart position, not being dead, of course, but just becoming the new leader of the Brotherhood without banners. Any thoughts about that theory, guys? It's a fun theory. It depends. You know, was she too busy filming the new Star Wars movie while this was all going on? Uh, I think we don't have enough clues. Hopefully there'll be some more trailers and videos that'll give us some hints. Mike, any speculation? That would be the most interesting thing Brienne's ever done, that's for sure. Wow. I was not going to go there. I was not going to go there. (laughs) At least since she got out of the bear pit. Right. Folks, send your hate mail to podcastwinterfell at gmail.com. You don't think her fight with the hound was more interesting than the bear? Uh, All right. Score that. You're right. I'll give you that. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll right. give you that. The fight with the hound was pretty great. You're right. So she's had one good moment since the bear. I like the look on her face when Jamie gave her the sword. But in just in terms of like her storyline, you know, she's the actress has definitely had some good moments, but that would be the most interesting thing that's happened to that character as far as the storyline goes, I think, by far. Right. Yeah. Uh well, uh, I, I mean, I don't have any other kind of place, way to place this in any kind of context. Does anybody have their own ideas? I imagine it's definitely early in the season, is all mm. I'll guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds about right. It seems like both of these shots actually will just about have to be pretty early on in the season if the show is going to... Yeah, or or the first episode. Yeah, yeah. Wow, the first episode. Yeah, possibly so. Uh, that would make sense, actually, since that way they don't have to reveal any other developments um, beyond what people are going to see at the premiere uh, next uh, this month. Wow, this month on the 18th at the Tower of London. So uh, that makes sense. Any other thoughts on this, or shall we move on to the books, guys? Well, once again, it's just nice that we finally got something for all these people who gave their emails to uh, this site. It's nice to finally be rewarded with something uh, with a bit more substance. I would agree with that, too. I would agree with that, too. Speaking of substance, let's talk this week's chapters, which are John 11, Cersei 11, The Queen's Guard, The Iron Suitor, and Tyrion 11. Uh, that's all, of course, from A Dance with Dragons. We're done with Feast for Crows. I Hopefully you guys have put that on the shelf. And uh, we will move on to kind of initial impressions of these chapters. Mike, let's start with you, sir. Uh, pretty good. I mean, you know, I'm, we've got like a couple weeks left. Like, it feels like this book is about to be done, you know. So they're all, there's things happening as he's, you know, trying to wrap up at least this part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I kind of read these five chapters almost as kind of like a little inhale before a big exhale coming. You know, I I mean, (laughs) don't get me wrong. There's some interesting things that happen in these chapters. But for me, it was kind of like it's kind of like setting up perhaps what might be the final chapters of some of these POV characters uh, going down the line here since we only have, I guess, 15 chapters left after this read, and there's an awful lot of point-of-view characters. Some of them will probably get more than one, but this looked like the big, uh, 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 like I said, inhale before the exhale. Bubba, how about you? Uh, it wasn't so much an uh, exhale or an inhale. It was, for me, a sigh. Like, oh, come on. Oh. We are over 700 pages into this book. 
Everybody, hashtag skip ahead. Let's go. Yeah, There's some good I, stuff in these chapters, but after the two that ended last week's Tandem Breed, which were you know, kind of pulse-pounding, I guess I would say, I'm ready. Please, please, George. I would also say, and this is kind of just a general overview, if you look at the uh, first book and the third book, you know, it, it felt like they were building up to moments, but they were kind of total surprises. The end of the first book, whack, there goes Ned's head. End of the third book, you know, Red Wedding, whoa, Purple Wedding, you know, like all these kind of right turns, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where the second book, it felt like, you know, the whole book was building up to this big battle, and it ended with the Blackwater. In this book, I wonder if it feels, I wonder how it, people, you know, write to us and tell us, or if you guys want to say, does this feel like it's building to a battle? Is it building to the Battle of Marine, maybe a battle uh, in the north, maybe, uh, you know, a battle at Hardhome, you know, where is it, or uh, is it going to be one of those right turns where, like, you think something's going to happen, and then, whoa, what just happened? What do you think, Mike? Because I've already read. Uh, I mean, I think that the end of this is probably more about establishing people's position on the chessboard. Like, you know, Daenerys has control over her dragon, so she can kind of start to take control of her situation a little bit more. I don't think there's enough book left for, you know, to get... I mean, I think there's enough book left to get all of the free folk on the other side of the wall, but not enough for the, you know, for the White Walkers to come. And I think that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the probably the series climax anyway, you know. So it doesn't really feel to me like there's going... It feels like there's going to be some fighting, but, I mean, it seems like Tyrion is probably going to come, you know, around in Daenerys' life somehow. They were in the same room together, sort of, you know, in a couple of chapters ago. So it feels more like we're kind of setting up for some big moments in that way, some big kind of character moments. But I don't think there's really even... There's enough room for a big fight. All right. Well, let's see if there's enough room for some more wildlings north of the wall. We'll go to John 11. We joined John and Tormund in the wildling camp, negotiating Tormund's group coming south of the wall. John returns to the wall with Val Ghost, his crow, and two escorts arriving. He gives the news of peace and some orders, and then takes Val to meet with Queen Talese. The meeting does not go well, and Talese is displeased with John's terms with Tormund, leaving Val even oh, leaving Val is even more upset about Shireen's condition than anything else. He then attends a meeting atop the wall with the Hill Clans, Marsh, Yarwick, and Septon, and talking about the terms of the agreement with Tormund and about the Weeper who camps near Shadow Tower. Um, let's start with you, Bubba. Uh, what do you want to say about this chapter first? All right, well, let me bring up my notes. Give me a second here. Uh, I guess the thing I would say is that, you know, where it's like, and this was the first note I wrote, so sorry if this is maybe a a kind of too of an overviewing type thing, but uh, it's like, you know, I always think these books are better than the show because the show has to condense so much. But it feels like we've spent over 700 pages in this book getting to the point we're kind of like you knew it had to go at the end of the third book. And so, you know, you knew the wildlings had to come south. You know, you, there couldn't be any more fighting. And it's like, get on with it. And so uh, I guess, 
maybe one of the reasons why I think this chapter is, you know, kind of a sigh is like, well, this is where it had to go, and so let's do it. Now, of course, the flip side of this is the question uh, you got to ask everybody: is is the Bowen Marsh side right? Is what John doing treason? To me, it seems logical, but maybe because we're in his head for this POV chapter, I don't know. But uh, you know, it, it felt like at the end of the third book. Well, of course, they've got to get everybody south of the wall, and so uh, so that's why maybe I'm tough on it. I can I can see that viewpoint. I can see that viewpoint. And Mike, I'll get your opinion on on whether John's doing the right thing or not uh, right after I make this comment, which is also kind of overviewing, and that is that John is. Uh, <laughs> actually way, way more mature than what you would think is age, uh, especially with Tormund at the beginning, uh, the way that he, he like, takes all, everything that, uh, that Tormund is, is throwing around kind of uh, with a grain of salt. Um, and, he's, you know, it's like Tormund is, is trying to get a rise out of him, and you would think that anybody that was, what, 16? Is that how old John is, maybe, at, at best? Uh, you would think that uh, a kid couldn't stay that calm, but he, he manages to. On the other hand, he kind of lashes out a little bit at his guys at the end of the chapter, his own guys, um, which is, you know, and I understand that he's having to command them, and he, so he's got to be stern with them, but um, is is he holding back too much with the wildlings and kind of taking it out on, on his own men is, is the question that I ask, and uh, that kind of goes back to you, Mike, about Bubba's question there. Is John doing the right thing? Is it treason? Is it, I don't know, what, what is it? I mean, I think that according to uh, the rules 500 years ago or 300 years ago or even 200 years ago or especially in times of summer, maybe it is treason, you know, by the letter of the law. Uh, but I think that he's right when the impending threat is this, rising dead thing that nobody understands, then the three folk count as men. And he says that, you know, are they not men? You know, they have their own gods. Some of them even have laws. You know, are they not men? And when he's making that distinction, he's not making a distinction between civilized men and and wildlings. You know, he's making a distinction between living men and dead men, which I think you got to give him some some a wide latitude with that, you know. Mm-hmm. I think he is doing the right thing, and I think that ultimately his point is that it's easier to feed living people than re-kill dead ones. Uh, right. And I think that's you know I think that's solid logic in his wait, situation. Wait, can I say and and let me say I, I agree with the general point, but at times when it gets to specifics, like yeah, let everybody through, including this. Uh, forgive me, this bastard, the weeper, isn't that, shouldn't he have some distinction rather than just kind of a blind everybody through? I don't know. That that was the part where I thought, you know, he maybe he was losing his men rightly for instead of saying, okay, listen, we'll let, you know, women through, we'll let children through, we'll let men who throw down their weapons. But if somebody's killed so many of ours, you know, at a certain mm-hmm. point, I don't know. It's a certain, it's a, it's a kind of quandary to be perfectly honest, because now that he's allowed so many people over on his side of the wall, um, if he doesn't allow, is he at a point where he can't go back on it? Because if the wildlings find out, well, they let us through, but they didn't let the weeper through, uh, maybe they got relatives over there with the weeper or whatever. It, it could it could create more problems on this side of the wall if he doesn't do it just to concede everybody, right? 
Well, I yeah, think he's also counting on them kind of buying into his mission, whether because they genuinely want to or because he's feeding them or because they actually see the enemy coming. You know, so I think that he's kind of counting on everybody getting on his side to a certain extent. And also, once you've got, I mean, really, the more of them you have on that side, the more protection you actually have against a guy like the Reaper because he's more likely to kind of be held in in place by his own, you know. And he's certainly more likely to listen to, you know, uh, whoever, you know, the whoever is on John's side. He's more likely to listen to them than he is to listen to an actual man of man of the night watch. Hmm. Bubba, were you going to say something? Just in this particular case, I think just as when I was talking about before, he was like promoting people who had just kind of shown up rather than his team of uh, brothers who'd been there all along. And he's like, nah, this guy who just showed up, who yeah, he was a whore in Molestown, but now I'm going to promote him. You know, it it wasn't very smart politics. This also is very similar. I mean, you know, I I if it were me, I'd find a way to be able to draw lines. You know, to be able to say, mm-hmm. yeah, that guy, sure. Once you come in, we're you know, I don't know, we're throwing you in prison if you're afraid it'll cause a revolt to kill him. You know, but uh, I wouldn't. Right. Yeah. I, and uh, just speaking to that whole uh, men of the realm kind of speech that John gave, it was nice to see actually Samwell say that in season three to Mr. Amen, right? I, I think that that's where this was pulled from, or that particular speech that Sam was pulled from, because I don't recall him saying anything like that in the books, did he? Oh, boy. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> it all kind of blends together, but no, I yeah. think the TV show took it from here, kind of. Yeah, that's what I think so. Uh, as you, I think that as well. Um Mike, why do you think it, it really by Val's reaction to Shireen? Um, I mean, that's that was just pure disgust and 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 almost a sense of fear in regards to Grayscale. Um, do you think the Wildlings have a reason for fearing Grayscale that much? I mean, I I wonder if it's not one of those things that's much worse without you know any kind of civilized society you know if it if it's a kind of thing where like as long as you can kind of keep a person warm and maybe the maesters really do know something for it i don't know i mean she seemed to react to it with a great amount of fear but nobody else you know this is the first time we've heard that so i wondered if it wasn't a little more of kind of a folk tale or something she did seem scared but it didn't scare me i wasn't convinced Gotcha. Oh, can I can I argue the opposite side? In that I thought uh, this was obviously like ding, 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 foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. And so maybe once again I'm taking it from uh, the uh, you know kind of just an overriding. Well, why is he writing this into the story? And to be honest, I read this you know when this book came out, and so that's why it was so funny. People back when season two of the TV show came out, they were like, where's Shireen, where's Elise? And it was moments like this that made me know that the show couldn't cut them. I think this, I think the grace scale is uh, coming. Get your kids vaccinated. Let's do this. <laughs> wow. Right on. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem kind of odd that, uh, that he would have uh, such a reaction to it. Although, again, the way that George builds worlds, it could be very well to Mike's point too, but we will have to see. 
Um, Mike, do you have a point, sir? Uh, I just, you know, I think, I think Bob is right to a certain extent about how we kind of have known for quite a while now that this is where it was going to have to land. But I really have been enjoying the characters of the wildlings more than I think. I think I relate better to the the wildlings than anybody else in the books. After five books, I think that's where it's at, you know. And I really liked Val saying, you know, can I laugh when I kneel? And then, and I've, you know, I also have to say thank you a lot for pointing out the whole thing about Sir Patrick and the cowboys and the five stars and everything. Because in this book, you know, in this chapter, he kneels to her and she pats him on the head like a dog <laughs> and calls him Sir Kneeler and tells him to stand up and all that. And that just, that made me think about George Martin at a Ren Fair in the 70s. Oh, yeah. he, he watching all of the his cowboy. friends, like, kneel in front of chicks and, and, you know, get turned down. So I enjoyed that. I, you know, I thought that was all, the, the characters, I think, were really good in this one. I like uh, Thorman Giants Bane a lot. Um, just the character of him, you know, and, and the way that he talks and the kind of jokes that he makes, you know, and stay away from this one. I already got one daughter. I don't need another one. Har! You know, Har! I, I really liked all of that. So, And I doubt he's going to show up in the show, but uh, he definitely made the chapter for me. What you got, Bubba? Oh, well, I just, number one, what he, he, uh, what Mike just said is one of my notes. I put that Tormund is a great character. I love him so much. Uh, what uh, Mike didn't touch on, maybe, is that first Egret and now Val, Val, excuse me. John's attracted to what I like to call double W's, wildling women. I mean, hello. <laughs> his banter with Val is a bit better than his with Egret's. And I wonder if one of the reasons why we haven't heard about the show casting Val is because it might be weird for John to be smiling and flirting again so soon, you know, kind of show-wise after Egret just bit it at the end of uh, season four. Yeah, and I will say that I I, I know I'm not supposed to because John has an oath and he's not, you know, whatever, but uh, I do ship John and Val. uh, Me too, dude. I can't wait for him to bang Val. That's going to be great. And uh, even Tormund ships John and Val. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I love them. What else we got on this chapter, guys? I, you know, I like the way that he is kind of, of being forceful, you know, about making this decision. Uh, and he even says at one point, I, I think he was in this chapter, not the last one, you know, kind of an Ask Janice Slint, you know, kind of if I'm serious. Uh, and I really like that. You know, I think that he's, this is, you know, he's got to do it. I mean, there's no better time. Stannis is gone. He's going to come back shortly. He's moving all these people over. He's garrisoning the, the castles. I mean, this is serious work. And I don't think praying about it is really going to get anything done. I think he's got to have the attitude he has. Hmm. Yeah, uh, interesting. What else we got? Anything? Nothing, just that there's uh, the one good thing that Martin stays consistent with is, you know, if you don't get any ravens, you're kind of blind to what's happening in other POV chapters. And so he keeps one, you know, he, John keeps thinking, if Stannis comes back alive, you know, uh, which I think anybody naturally would at this case. Good. Right on. Well, uh, let's move on then. If we have uh, no other points to talk about, we'll move on to another 11 
Cersei 11. Well, it's 11 in the tandem read anyway. Uh, we start with a uh, book four recap of what happened to Cersei. And then uh, we go uh, as her uh, captivity uh, begins to torture her. She says that she's ready to confess and is brought before the High Sparrow, learning that Marjorie is yet to be tried along the way. Uh, in a calculated confession, she admits to various acts of sex but denies other more serious charges involving Robert and Jamie. She is permitted one visitor a day and chooses Kevin Lannister. He visits with news of the realm and what she must do to atone for her sins as mandated by the High Sparrow. He also tells her that he is now the regent and that most of the small council are Tyrell loyalists and the circumstances and also tells her about the circumstances around the accusations against Marjorie. He then tells Cersei about Marcella in Dorne, and when she learns of Sir Aerys' death, she realizes the opportunity to have Kevin go to Kyburn for the King's Guard replacement. Wow. Okay. Uh, Mike, go, sir. Great stuff. Uh, Cersei's crazy, but it's actually meaning something now. I'm really happy to see her actually having to, to like plot and plan and really go through it in a way that she hasn't really been kind of, you know, she's just been kind of flailing off on her own and trying to do things, but mostly just a babbling idiot in the corner, a babbling drunk idiot in the corner, you know, and now she's, I feel like the chapters are written like a little bit more, a little bit crisper because she's not drinking anymore. Is that crazy? She's sobering up. Hmm. Interesting. I I don't know. What do you think, Bubba? Uh, you know, when you get thrown in in prison and it becomes your alcohol detox, I think you sober up real quick. Uh, <laughs> and I I think Mike's right. Yeah, she's you know she's suddenly becomes more focused. You know, she she's not focused on a million things. She's focused on one thing: get me the hell out of here. And that's important. Yeah. Um. On the other hand, let me just say real quickly though. Um, what I find is that, you know, she's having to calculate an awful lot in these confessions um, out of necessity due to mistakes that she's made. Um, so there, there's some, there's some, I guess, uh, I guess some justice in that. But it also makes you think that, you know, as she's made some of these omissions, when will that come back to bite her in the butt? Oh, everything. Everything. I thought, and I don't remember if we found out about this in the last chapter or not, but one of my notes is uh, on this chapter is, wait a minute, Lancel is testifying against her? Uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so some of those things she doesn't confess to, uh, you know, it's going to be a he said, she said type thing. And uh-oh. Right. The one thing that she does have, though, is possibly a new Kingsguard that she chooses trial by battle. Um, and that, you know, the fact that she named out Kyburn, it's got to be that guy he's keeping down in the black cells, right? That was screaming a lot that we don't know if he has a head or not. But, but what do you think, Mike? Wait, uh, you can't put Falsy Stokeworth on the King's Guard. Are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be uh, the mountain's body with somebody else's head. Who else's head? I keep wanting to say berries, but I don't How about think that's right. Now you're talking. Mountain oh. body, Ned's head. 
Oh my gosh, you guys just uh, oh, that's just it's a terrible. Be awful. Thought. People, people in the chat room awful. are throwing out other names, like you know, Rob. There's a Rob head you could stick on there. There's Gray Wind's head you could stick on there. Let's do this. <laughs> oh, Septimordain. Septimordain's like, say your prayers. Yes, of course. <laughs> Maybe Tywin's head. It's going to have the mountain's body, but her dead father's head. Oh man, that would be hot. Yeah, the the line, my champion will need a new name as well as a new face. That is just scary. Um, I I just I hate I I just hate to think of the possibilities. To be perfectly honest, what do you got, Bubba? Well, uh, you know, this is uh, I'm going to have kind of an overview statement right here at the top again, and how I hope our listeners and everybody, uh, I hope everybody once again just gets experienced this as a tandem read. And I just want to go back to kind of the people who didn't get the tandem read. I mean, think of how odd this book is. Here we're on page 717, and after 770 pages, suddenly we're back to Cersei, and she hasn't appeared yet in this book before. And uh, that's not getting to the new, uh, on page 730, the brand new POV chapter we're going to get next. Uh, and so uh, I, I think it was weird. It just feels so much better as part of the tandem read flowing through it. And I thought that... Uh, you know, maybe here's a point we could talk about in that Cersei prays to the Seven. But the Seven feel a bit like the Drowned God, where it doesn't feel like we've really seen them do anything. Have they? Have they? Have the Seven done anything? Unlike uh, Melisandre and her Lord of Light, Relor uh, religion, and even the Old Gods, obviously, we've seen them to be able to do stuff. If maybe Bran himself is the Old God. But uh, the Seven... Eh, not really cutting it in the old uh, magic realm, are they? Doesn't seem like it. I mean, there's, there's, there doesn't seem to be any physical man- manifestation of their presence as one might associate with Melisandre or might associate with the old gods, for sure. Um, I tend to place my whole religious aspect of it now in the power of the people that support that religion. Um, that, uh, you know, maybe there is an overall kind of power source to be tapped into, but some some people or people of certain religions are better at tapping into that same power as the other. But, Mike, what's your opinion of the Seven? Uh, I mean, <laughs> they don't really seem to be very effective. And I think, you know, one thing that's interesting is that when people talk about the old gods or when people talk about the Lord of Light, it's, it's, it's almost always respectfully. Every now and then somebody will, like, crack a joke about it or something. But people say, you know, seven help us and, you know, seven hells. And, like, the kind of, the the seven is just, is like slang, you know, the way we, oh, Jesus Christ, you know, or variate cheese and rice, you know, whatever the variations of that. Um, So it kind of seems, you know, I mean, not only are they not effective, but they're kind of openly... Uh, disrespected in the books. Mm. Yeah, that's so funny. I'm not really expecting much from them either, I guess. Uh, people in the chat room are pointing out that maybe Catelyn Stark was the one who had the strongest faith in the Seven, uh, you know, of any of the characters we've kind of really gotten to know in a POV of. It's like she's the one who really believed in them. She was the one who would go to the Seps, where it feels like so many other people either don't believe or it's not as strong a belief. Look what that got us. Let's see. Uh, What else we got on this chapter, guys? 
Well, the you, news. You, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that uh, some of the things we find out in this chapter are about Marjorie. You know, I love the Tyrells, or the Tyrells, however Roy Detrice pronounces it. And we get a lot of information about them. I believe we can kind of uh, trust it. We hear that Marjorie is with Tom and Day and Knight. And it's like, oh, boy, that's bad news that Cersei doesn't want to hear. And so you think, well, wait a minute. How did Marjorie get out of – she was in a prison herself. Uh, we hear the Septa imply that there'll be a trial soon and hints at a brother, but she doesn't say which brother. You know, in the books, Marjorie has three brothers, Willis, uh, who's uh, injured his leg, and she has Garland, who's a great fighter, and Sir Loras, who's the greatest fighter, but theoretically has been injured on Dragonstone. And that uh, the final thing we hear about the Tyrells is that Mace Tyrell uh, won't send his army to, uh, you know, these sellswords that they hear about in the south because he wants to keep his troops close until Marjorie is safe. So uh, we're finding out about different stuff, and this is the easiest Bubba question there is, but uh, Cersei and Kevin hear about these sellswords landing in the south in the Stormlands, and Kevin thinks Stannis, but... Uh, Mike, who who are these sellswords landing in the south? Uh, no, because Stannis sent uh, the guy who's missing his fingertips. So it wouldn't be his people. I don't know. Tell me. But it would be the Golden Company is who it would right. be. Remember that group of, of guys that were headed to uh, Westeros? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, that means that Fagon may have reached Westeros now. Wow. Yeah, that's what that's what it sounds like. And what's interesting is that there is nobody going out to uh, face him down because Mace Terrell's theoretically the only one with any army, and he's going to keep him. Uh, he's going to keep his close for his daughter. But so they're landing in the south, but not in Dorne. No, that's a great point to pick up on. They seem to only be landing in the Stormlands. The north, so south, but north of Dorne. So right. because Dorne, so Dorne wouldn't fight them because they're not landing in Dorne, so they're not going to mess with them. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, and I, I, of course, we don't have the circumstances as to why they would land in the Stormlands. Was there any discussion in that Golden Company chapter uh, before Tyrion parted ways with everybody about where they were going to go and why, other than just going to Westeros? Yeah, to be honest, I think if there were any hints, it would have been in the John Connington chapter where they actually talked to some of the Golden Company people. But, uh, you know, dare I say that was so many weeks and months ago, I can't recall. Yeah, I can't either. I can't either. And uh, our good buddy Randall Tarley, Father of the Year, uh, is now the uh, <laughs> Justice CR, or however you say that word. Justicar? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea how it's pronounced, but, you know, it's good that he's getting a promotion. Yeah, yeah. And, and he, you know, he's he's well-practiced. We saw him at Maidenpool, you know, delivering justice uh, on a daily basis with uh, when Brienne visited him, right? So he's, he'll be good with that. It's also good that he's busy now that Sam's getting back at his neck of the woods. Yeah, that's true. It's kind of, it turned out kind of convenient for Sam, didn't it? Uh, yeah. Because he was worried about having to face his you know, dad or whatever, and his dad's now kind of stuck in King's Landing. That's a great point. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's a great point. I didn't think about that. What else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, I just want to speculate real quick that, you know, I've kept thinking that, well, we don't know for sure because it's all hearsay that our boy uh, Loris is injured. But if that hearsay is true, maybe, and now that Mace, you know, is so powerful and that Kevin Lannister has become Lord Regent, maybe they would have replaced Loris or some of these dead Kingsguard, like the one, like Ares Oakheart, maybe they would have replaced him with uh, Garland Terrell instead of, uh, you know, somebody who might be, Cersei might be glad to hear. I would say this chapter, like a lot of things, uh, I'm not sure Cersei, <laughs> like a lot of this book, I'm not sure Cersei heard anything she liked from anybody. That's true. She got a lot of bad news. She did get a lot of bad news. Will you please sit down? <laughs> Poor Cersei. <laughs> Poor Cersei. She just uh, she's she's going ninety miles a minute, even in a six by six cell. Um, so, anything else, guys? And how many times did she comment on the letter she sent to Jamie before she decided the rainbow never got there? I feel like it was the third time by the time she. So one of them was a reminder. Right, and then I don't know. Like it just seems like that was one of those things that came up a number of times in this one. Do you think that was just because of how important it is to her, or just because they were trying? He was trying to kind of remind everybody that was what was going on. Well, do you think? I think that it. It, it to me, what it says is it tells me that maybe Cersei isn't as clear-headed as you guys are giving her credit for. Uh, I, I think that she's still quite delusional, uh, and. Um, I don't think she did herself one bit of good by going in front of anybody and confessing sins because I think it'll just lead to, to to worse situations for her. Yeah, those partial uh, confessions. You're right. They they've gotten her at an okay place now, but it might be you know it's a little better now, but worse later. You think? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what I think is that it, um, in the long run it can't it can't be all that good for her. But um, we'll have to see what. But uh, how she is asked asked to atone, uh, she seems to feel, uh, I don't know, uh, evidently she seems to know what Kevin is talking about because she reacts kind of violently to it, right? Yeah, she is not hip to it. Yeah, definitely not. What do you think, Mike? Uh, well, I mean, this is the one, like, this is why I try to avoid all the TV spoilers because there were all these fucking stupid internet nerds like, oh my God, there's going to be a naked thing. You know, so I the one article that I saw was talking about her walking down the street getting hit or something. So I don't I didn't try not to really, you know, I got out of it as soon as I could. But So uh, I'm guessing it's some sort of public flogging spectacle. You know, but she says like it's, you know, not a common whore. You know, uh, so I don't know. It sounds it sounds like a very public kind of punishment, you know, it's like a shaming thing. So, mm. I mean, that takes in religious in religious history. A lot of times, that involves some sort of, you know, whatever, a belt with nails in it. I guess I don't know. So okay. Now, I and Trone just joked in the chat room. You know, uh, somebody being. Nude, and he just wrote maybe a Westerosi Mardi Gras. Now that is a joke, <laughs> but uh, she has to try and get as many beads as she possibly can. 
Right, for her hair shirt does. Many maester chains as she possibly can. (laughs) Now, can I pitch out a a question someone wrote in the chat room? He says, after all this happened, why is Kevin still listening to Cersei? And so the question is, you know, it's like, you know, she theoretically fooled, you know, uh, debased his son, Loras, and stuff. And so why, you know, why is he even, you know, listening to her at all? Why is he even trying to help her since she kind of corrupted sweet, innocent Lancel? I mean, did you, I didn't really feel like he was listening to her or necessarily trying to help her. I mean, I think that he, you know, I think he felt like she was saying like, oh, it's so wonderful to see you, you know, and kiss him on the cheek and all this kind of stuff. But he didn't really indicate any, he didn't really indicate back to her that he was, taking her seriously, I didn't feel like. It was more just kind of like, look, I'm trying to tell you, like, is, this is serious. You know, like, you've always been able to just kind of slide under your your dad's apron strings or whatever, your dad's skirt tails, but, you know, you're really in trouble now. What did I miss? Was there warmth from him, did you feel like? No, I don't think there was warmth at all, but he did come, which is something that you would expect Maybe, you know, just as Jamie didn't uh, respond to the letter, you might think that that Kevin, especially the fact, I mean, politically, he's suffered a lot more. He's, uh, you know, he should be um, the the warden of the West. Uh, He was denied that by Cersei, Um, you know, as Bubba brought up all those things that happened to Lancel. Um, that Lancel has probably told him. Uh, and, and the fact that he showed up at all, I think, is what begs the question. Um, well, but she none... is also still the mother of the king. And, you know, some people take that seriously. And I feel like Kevin Lannister is one of them people, you know. Right. Yeah. In terms of actual power, however, he is now the same thing that she was, um, being the Lord Regent. Um, still, though, I can definitely see your point. Uh, I, you know... But I, I'm like you. I, I think while he was there, there was definitely no warmth uh, at all. It, it took him, it seemed like forever, which was really just maybe a, a sentence and a half. But to me, George Wright said so well that it just seemed like it took forever for him to even pat her on the shoulder, right, as she was hugging him. So uh, I agree with you there. Will you please sit down? Uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, should we sit down on this chapter, or do we have anything else? Yeah, I'm good. I don't have any other points. Did you have any other things, uh, Matt? I don't think so. I think we covered everything. That I, I, you know, I just like uh, I came up with this uh, very uh, Jack Gleason-like thing, saying how many sides could a Cersei side if a Cersei side she could? Because <laughs> she, I found I found regicide and deicide. Uh, that one seemed really ridiculous to me, the deicide one. I was kind of on Cersei, in Cersei's court on that one. Uh, that's kind of a ridiculous charge. Um, I can't liken that to any other uh, religion laws, but I don't know. Maybe somebody else can help me out on that. Real world that, religion. No, yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I can't. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's been... <clears throat> There's been people, It's I don't know that something like that has ever really been like specifically enshrined in law, but there's definitely been people punished for killing, you know, uh, religious leaders in kind of an extra, an extra capacity. 
you know, like you did something like extra bad, like this person was kind of spiritually connected. There is a history. There is history for okay. that. In virtually every religion, and not necessarily even that it was condoned by the religion. It's more kind of uh, like you killed my favorite preacher. You know, somebody yeah. gets run out of town or, or you know, burned right. at the stake or whatever like that. So, Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Kill kill the bishop in the Middle East, in medieval times, and you're probably going to suffer the consequences of that from somebody. That makes sense. Well, and there's um, still, I mean, you know, there's still religions where, you know, the Pope is still supposed to be the infallible representative of God on earth, right? So, right. I mean, that language is still used. They just have better bulletproof cars, I guess. Right. Yeah. Last call for Cersei, guys. No, let's get uh, let's get out of this before uh, more charges get brought up. <laughs> okay, we'll move on to the Queen's Guard, and the Queen's Guard is none other than Barristan Selmy. We find him being replaced by as uh, as the Royal Guard with his Dar's Pit fighters, but being kept in command of forces in the event of battle. He recalls what happened to everyone when Drogon took off with Daenerys, and what has happened since. Nisande gives Barristan news that the Brazen Beast's former commander wishes to speak with him, and Barristan recalls and speculates about the shave pate, finally agreeing to the meeting at a later time. After recalling more of his own history, he then trains potential knights for the Queen's Guard, and meeting with the shave pate, he hears the former Brazen Beast's leader's accusations and evidence and then agrees to speak with Grey Worm to get the Unsullied involved. Mm, uh, let's see, Mike, where do you want to start with this one, sir? Uh, this chapter kind of felt like a placeholder, especially after the last Daenerys chapter. You know, it kind of felt like we have to get through the idea that she's missing. I, you know, I kind of liked his history stuff. I liked the idea of the the Missandei character as like a ghost in the the top of the pyramid, you know. Um, so there were there were certain things in the chapter that I thought were good, but overall it definitely felt like a placeholder. We went back to that pyramid and there was no Daenerys, there was no dragon. You know, was, I was kind of disappointed in that. Ah, gotcha. Yeah, um, there's a lot of information that's relayed, though. I mean, in yes. terms of uh, all of the replacements and the fact that the Dothraki are, are away looking for Danny, um, that Dario is still a hostage, um, that Grey Worm has rebelled, um, and, and this is kind of interesting because we talked about it in our in our TV viewing is is how Grey Worm is so devoted to Danny as he is here, uh, but he's exercising. We've heard him and, and Missande in the television show talk about. Uh, you know, what it means to be free now and everything. And, and it, it's great to see Grey Worm speaking up to his uh, to his superiors, uh, alleged superiors, and, and becoming an actual free man. Um, so that was interesting to me as well. Bubba, what do you got? Well, I want to say, and I have to admit, I'm, uh, I guess all my comments so far at the start of each chapter is kind of an overriding thing. And one of the things is that if I understand this whole Miranese not correctly, this chapter, more specifically, this POV character is was the solution to the Miranese knot. And one of the one of the big things about this Miranese knot wasn't so much that he wanted to create a uh, 
kind of a you know a quagmire, which he's done such a great job of. But so much is that once Danny, you know, either was killed or disappeared on Drogon, what was he going to do? Who was going to be the POV chapter to explain all this stuff? And theoretically, once again, I, I think I have this right. He finally settled on Barristan, and maybe one of the reasons why he was holding off on Barristan so long is because of what Iantrone wrote in the chat room, and that was Sir Grandpa knows too much. You know, he he he's been alive too much, and he can actually recall things that would just kind of answer so many mysteries here in the fifth book. And uh, maybe one of the reasons why he didn't immediately go to Barristan and maybe thought about other characters or POVs or thought about well, how could Tyrion hear about all this information outside the city walls, example, is, uh, you know, he was trying to figure it out. And so, once again, I, I think the true Miranese knot is Martin know he knew he needed to tell stuff, but he wasn't sure who would who would be the one. And so... I, he settled on Sir Bearston, and I wondered if you guys liked him, like Sir Grandpa as a POV chapter, so late in the whole proceeding. What do you think, Mike? Uh, yeah, I mean, faced with the dilemma that you just described, I think that's a, a good choice. Uh, you know, he kind of has access to everybody, but you don't want to get bogged down in, like, the king's new court. Unless you're going to go into the the like really get into the politics of Marine, which none of this has really been about. You know, she gets married. There's questions about who's really running the Harpy, you know, the Harpy group, and and they, but they don't really, you know, he hasn't gotten into like well, this family in Marine means this, and this family means that. And maybe if you can use this family against that family, like in the way that he's gotten into the politics of the Erie. Um, He's gotten Great. into the politics of that a lot more. So you don't you don't want to go there. That's pointless to start that now, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What you were going to say? Oh, I was just saying this is bringing up a great point, and I honestly think, you know, it's a shame Susan isn't here because she always stands up for these uh, Daenerys slash Marine chapters, and uh, she always points out the you know that uh, site on the internet, the Marinese uh, blot or whatever it's called, and I'm always so tough on them. And I'm always like, uh, here's an example. You know, the people like Hisdar, Shavepay, and uh, Resnak, and the Green Greys, who who are they really in Marine? They're the equivalent of people like Varys, uh, Littlefinger, Pycelle, uh, Renly in the first book, you know, the King's Council back in King's Landing. Yet, in the first book, I could tell you, you know, forget the TV show, I read it, before the TV show, I could tell you what Littlefinger looked like. I could tell you what Varys looked like. I could tell you what Pycelle looked like. I, I could explain lots of things about him. And as I was sitting here reading this chapter, I, even though I'm sure it's been described in all, and, and this is our second read for me, I'm thinking, I have no idea what Resnak looks like. I couldn't tell you what, you know, anything, any special quirk about him, like I know about so many of the other characters. And so that's why, you know, no matter how much the uh, other people, and I hope people do enjoy these chapters, for me, it's like, this doesn't even compare to to some of the writing he's done in the past. And so, you know, every character, you you know, that you read about Marine from, whether in just the reads we do today, whether it's Barristan or Tyrion later, they're both like, why are we here? I don't care about this stuff. And so how as a reader are we supposed to care if the two POV chapters don't care and if Daenerys cared but was always miserable? And so I, I you know, once again, I, I hope we hear the other side. But uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm, I am I think this was kind of not great writing, and I think it wasn't great uh, storytelling. 
boy, I'm getting mm-hmm. real tough on this chapter. Somebody come in and defend this stuff. Well, well, well I, I will say. Oh, go ahead, Mike. No, no, no. I have. You're, I've been talking. Okay. Uh, well, what I would say is the fact that despite what you might, and I agree with you, Bubba, in the fact that I still, at this point in the book, still trying to figure out, okay, well, who is Resnick in relation to Danny? What does he do for her? Who is, uh, who is the shave paid in relation? I'm still having to recall some of those things, especially over the course of a tandem read where the chapters are strung out further apart, right? I'm having to reset my memory a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, that's one, perhaps one fault of the tandem read is when you get new characters is trying to remember who they actually are, regardless of what they look like or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, though, I made a whole lot of notes about this chapter, probably more notes about this chapter than any other, because I found a lot of the, the, the comings and goings and the information to be extremely valuable. Um, also, I really like this whole, uh, and, and I, I'm assuming this is the purpose of of George uh, writing it in this way was the fact that that the questions have become more focused in in this chapter than they have been in the past. We've been talking about Clay's prophecy and all of these these generalities and everything, and and now in these, especially in this group of chapters, but specifically in this chapter, the question becomes more focused: Is his dar the son of the har- Is he the leader of the sons of the harpy? Mike, what do you think? Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think there's a small council. There's a small group of them, but I think he's part of it. Okay, right. So you know, with this evidence of the confectioner uh, working for him, uh, but under duress, you know, George grazes it up just enough to make you think. You know, ask the question, and, and I know Bubba has. Sp- you've spoken to this point. Is his star the bad guy? Which is essentially the same question that I asked Mike. Well, after this chapter, I still don't think so. Now, one of the things that's happening is this guy, Shavepate, he keeps pointing the finger pretty hard at his star. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, that is just another reason, and maybe, you know, once again, this is a, a conceit of writing, you know, uh, of murder mysteries or whatever, that if somebody's pointing the finger real hard at person A, well, then it can't be person A. And mm-hmm. so... It was just my own uh, thought. You know, once again, he's not a good guy, but I, in the last podcast, I, com- I compared him to, when you watch a Batman movie, there's always kind of like the crooked, uh, uh, the crooked guy who works at Wayne Industries or the crooked businessman, but he's not the mm-hmm. Joker. And so that's what I would say his star is. All right. And there's another thing that George does here, and, and this might go straight to the same point that you were talking about, Bubba. Uh, because we've all had our jumped out with our own little theories about what the perfume Cinechel is, but I mean uh, George R. R. Martin makes a point to reference Resnick as the perfume Cinechel, uh like a couple of times in this chapter. Uh, on the other hand, you have your candidate Bubba of Tyrion's boat, my crackpot theory that it may be somebody that we haven't even met yet. Really, he's that Cinechel sitting in Old Town that Sam never got to meet. Uh, you know, I, I, we've all got our own theories about what the perfume Cinechel is, but George is really focusing in on that question uh, once again. And and maybe, Mike, do you think Bubba's right? Is is he making these kind of references so that we might eliminate him as a possibility? Uh, I don't know. It sounds pretty good when he says it, doesn't it? But, you all know, right, he's let me, also... Mike, Mike. Mike, let me throw out some more stuff to defend my boy, his star. If, if you agree with this setup, all right, you know he, you know he is already in trouble. You know he, he, you know he, 
he doesn't have anybody but the pit fighters. That doesn't sound like somebody who could be running the Sons of the Harpy if literally he needs these pit fighters, fighters to defend him because he's got trouble on all sides. Interesting. That's an interesting point. Yeah. That's it, Mike. Come to our side of pro Hisdar. <laughs> no. Hisdar 2016. No. Right for Marine. No. Right for you. Come on. I'm on. Well, I'm still on, on the fence myself. Go ahead, Mike. He's been. You know, he was putting. He was pointing the finger pretty hard and being really aggressive about it. But he's also, you know. I mean, I, he said, "Don't forget, you know, the the brazen beasts are still mine." Or yeah, the brazen beasts are still mine, you know. And I think that he feels um, insulted. You know, he's had his honor kind of uh, taken to a certain extent. You know, so I think that he might just be upset as opposed to uh, trying to throw somebody off the the trail. I don't know. That sounds pretty weak. I'm trying to make it sound stronger as I'm saying it out loud. It sounded better when it was still inside my head. Well, it, I mean, I, I I love it, but it is now at least, you know, you can, as Bubba said, you can you can start to say, well, maybe he's not or whatever. But in, in, it, in the beginning, it was still just like totally up in the air. Who the heck is he even? Um, so now you can start to take a stance one way or the other, I think is, is what I meant by trying to focus the question a little bit. And what else do we have on this chapter, guys? Well, we hear the, we hear the hints of Volantis wants Danny dead, and that'll pay off uh, in the next chapter, too. And so, you know, this is, this is a story about, uh, you know, we thought it was a story about the Seven Kings of, of Westeros. This feels like it's tying in all of Essos. Uh, this crazy uh, battle and conflict that, you know, it may be not fair to call it this way, but that Daenerys started. It's it's pulling in a whole continent of trouble. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Um, now, Salome recalls, speaking of Daenerys, that, uh, that her hair was a fire. Is that what he says in the book, in the chapter here? Um, so, uh, assuming that we will see Danny again, uh, I guess she'll be bald again, like she was after the birth of the dragons. You think, Mike? Sounds like it. I mean, I noticed that he said that too. She was bald after the birth of the dragons, just not in the television show, but in the books, she was bald. Right, right, right. Yeah. So her hair does burn. There is precedent for that. The funny thing for me is, and I don't know why this is, but when I read the Daenerys chapter, I mean, I remember the the, the line about the breath being hot and everything. But I didn't associate that with that, that actually being fire uh, at the time. I don't know. Did you when you read it, Mike? Well, there is a point where he says specifically that she ducked under the fire. And so it may have been, okay. you know, it, there's a point where Drogon shoots fire at her and she gets under it, you know, before she starts hitting him with the whip. And uh, it's after she has tripped over the guy and stood up, but before she starts hitting him. And so I think it probably would have happened at that moment. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Because when she's right in the face, I was thinking, wow, fire right to the face. That can't, can't be good. <laughs> um, but but is, uh, that, yet, is, her, is her learning to control one of the dragons, is that as big of a moment as the birth of the dragons? Because, like, is she going to come back, like, all kind of, like, dirty and bald and naked, like, reborn again? 
It doesn't seem to me like it's quite as big of a deal. Maybe not. Maybe not. But yeah, she will be as bald. Yeah, it's not just bald. Think about somebody bald without eyebrows. Creepy. <laughs> uh, and we went there. Send your hate mail to podcastwinterfell at gmail. No, that wasn't a bad comment, actually. That was funny. Um, what else we got on this chapter, guys? Well, uh, let me jump in with another minor point. But, Matt, since you took so many points, you may take it after this. But uh, Missende <laughs> and the shave pate were talking. And because there have been all these uh, hints just on the reread that, ooh, maybe Masande some involved with the uh, third uh, uh, treachery, the fir- third betrayal, I start wondering, hmm, is this part of it? And so, uh, you know, I wouldn't think so. There's nothing here to imply that at all. But I just thought it was interesting that Masande had somehow formed this bond already with sh- good old shave bait. Uh, it's interesting that he would seek her out. Um as yeah. opposed to sell me himself. Although, I, the, the argument I can make for that is that um, the shape Pate doesn't know Selmy's intentions. Even Selmy wrestles with himself in this chapter. Is, if he speaks of treason, I'll have to arrest him, right? So it may have just been a precautionary thing. But that's an excellent point, Boba. Absolutely. Uh, another thing that Selmy recalls here uh, is, is something to your old R plus L equals J uh, toutings here. Again, is, it kind of calls me back to the Tower of Joy. And we've heard this mentioned before, but the fact that he specifically thinks that a king's guard sometimes guards wives and children, but also lovers, mistresses, and bastards. Um, you know, and since we know that uh, several of the king's guard were at the Tower of Joy while Rhaegar was away to the Trident um, and had died there, uh, I, I guess uh, guarding Liana uh, is more R plus L equals J stuff, right? Yeah, these King's Guard had to guard the B. Bastard. Had to guard the bastard. Yeah, sounds like to me. What else we got? Well, I'm out of points, Matt. Take us through. What else are we missing here? Some of that more history that Barrison talked about? Or what What are points you have? Uh, actually, that's about all that I had. Um Mike, you got anything? Uh, no, just you know, it was a it was a good chapter for what it was, but it felt like it should have been earlier. I don't know, but you know, you you talk about the the kind of dilemma that he's in at this point, and you've kind of gone through, you know, who else could it possibly be? I mean, really, the only other option then would be to have Daenerys in the chapter, right? So I'm gonna say I'm gonna guess that this is not really a thing that you guys can talk about without spoiling you know, kind of how that goes down in the future. Uh, but it does, it it makes it, to me, like it makes the, having that conversation puts the chapter in a little better context in the sense mm-hmm. of how else are you going to get this information across. And in that, if that's the case, then I think, you know, tell me was a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bubba, back to, to your little uh, suspicion about Missande. I guess we right. could have had a Missande POV. Right, right. Um, I, I would love. I don't know if anybody's talked to him too much about it, but I I know that having Barristan be the POV was part of solving, or if there is a solution to this infamous Marinese knot. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Maybe maybe we could get a Masande chapter because she's got a darker secret, right, brother? Well, we can only hope. <laughs> Where she, you know, you get a chapter where uh, she reunites with Danny, and and behind Danny's back, she's thinking 
that Danny is stupid, right? Because she's only like what nine, ten in this chapter or in this. Yeah, that'd be pretty book. good. Yeah, right on. Uh, all right. Well, why yeah, don't one, we move uh, on? Betray- betrayal once for love, once for gold, once for being stupid. Being stupid. Yeah. Stupid love. Uh, all right. So, uh, Iron Suitor. The Iron Suitor is, of course, Victorian Greyjoy, who. The Iron Suitor is, of course, Victorian Greyjoy, who we find missing a good portion of his fleet. He recalls stops before the voyage, ships that had made it to the Isle of Cedars and storms. He then decides to get the fleet moving again, having seen Volantis' ships loading and crewing up and hearing rumors about their plans against Daenerys and reports about Marine itself. Recalling more about his voyage, he is then visited by the Maester, Cohen, in regards to his injured hand. He then recalls the fight that injured his hand and speculates why it hasn't healed. Then Makoro is found in the sea and brought before Victorian. Makoro promises to heal Victorian's hand and gives prophecies to him. Satisfied, Victorian, Victorian orders the maester's death. So, uh, one real quick thing. Of course, Mike, we have Kraken and Dark Flame together. So that was one of Quake's warnings. Yeah. That's good stuff. That 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 was a nice uh, nice put together. Did you expect to see Makoro again? I can't remember what you said the last time we talked about him. I am almost positive. I said he was dead. I'm almost sure. I said that he was gone. So I don't think I did not expect him to come back. I was surprised when he came out of the water in this chapter. That's for sure. I felt like the whole chapter perked up quite a bit when he came back around. Yeah, I was surprised, too. And the fact that it just seemingly, he says he'd only been there 10 days. Now, whether he's lost track of time or not. A lot has happened to Tyrion in 10 days then, evidently, right? <laughs> yeah, that seems a little that seems a little fishy. But how long can you really push the magic of drinking seawater? That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, Bubba, what you got, sir? Well, uh, I want to say, in my own notes, I wrote Makaro survived because, of course, he did. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's like, of course, George, yeah, fair enough. Uh, but one thing I want to say is just kind of all my first notes and all these are kind of overriding things. And that is that I said that when I, you know, I did not do a tandem read on first read. And when I started uh, reading Feast and all throughout Feast, I kind of hated reading the Victorian chapters. I was like, you know what, this isn't good. You know, I don't care. All these things. But one of the things happened and it, uh, when I got to dance is I actually started liking the Victorian chapters just because he's so nuts, he's so terrible, he's so odd. But he was, you know, he's kind of, because of those things, the chapters were kind of, like, interesting. And I thought, boy, this has to be the worst, most evil character who gets a POV. And that kind of makes it fun, you know, like, even, quote-unquote, villains like Cersei, or whoever you want to call, who got POVs, uh, you you found reasons to kind of empathize or get into it or whatever. Victorian, you don't like him, but he's so stupid and, and evil, it kind of makes the chapter one of the more fun ones to read. And yeah. so, uh, you know, that's kind of my overriding thing. I would say uh, one of the things Victorian thinks about those storms is he thinks to himself, God hates kinslaying. And I thought, hmm, well, maybe that's because evil Uncle Tyrion has been slaying his kin, and that's why the storms came, as opposed to him thinking that he, his thoughts of kinslaying his uh, brother were why the storms came. Wow. Yeah? 
could be evil Uncle Tyrion's fault. It's all evil Uncle Tyrion's fault. Always is. All of it. The whole thing. Um, yeah. Mike, what you got? Uh, chapter was okay. Uh, and then Makoro came out along and it got a lot more interesting. So the pus and blood was good. That was well written. But I just feel like he's on a doomed path, man. And there's all these people that are showing up trying to get in Danny's uh, Tokoro. Or no, Tokar. That's how you say it. Trying to get in Danny's Tokar. Uh, and I, I don't, like, I, that to me, I'm, I'd be curious to see how that kind of storyline or concept plays itself out, all these different suitors that she's got, because it just seems kind of ridiculous. Um, so, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm reading the Victorian chapters with a little bit of, I'm not that into them. Interesting. It gets a lot more interesting once he sticks his hand in fire and goes kind of crazy. Like, you know, then he <laughs> yeah. starts having fun. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing. I, I think uh, none of us here like Victorian as a character. I don't think that that's ever been the distinction that we made. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't like Victorian chapters, right? And like you said, that he gets it gets more interesting. Like Bubbin said, it gets more interesting uh, when you see, when you realize the crazy that that Victorian does, it doesn't make you like him any better. It just makes you, it just makes you uh, enjoy his chapters. I guess it's kind of like the J.R. thing, the J.R. Ewing thing. So, nice um, <laughs> Dallas shout out, dude! Wow. <laughs> hey man, you know I'm a I'm a, I'm a child of the '70s, man. I'm a Lucasfilm <laughs> kid, so you know all that stuff's gonna come come bubbling to the surface at some point. <laughs> well done, I liked it. I, I had a note about Victorian where I thought he's a bit almost like Quentin. He's a stranger in a strange land. He seems openly mocked by fate, and in this case, howler monkeys. You know, he's kind of, you know, he's only doing this really to screw over his brother. He obviously doesn't care about Marine or anything else. Uh, kind of like Quentin was only doing it to please his father. And so I, I thought it was interesting that we have these kind of two people going on these journeys for, quote-unquote, you might say the wrong reasons. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I They are um, taking on things that really aren't part of their own plan and they're, and they're um, trying to twist it into their own way and, and not, I don't know, we can't really say, obviously, Victorian's fleet has suffered a lot, and from what he can understand, there's going to be a heck of a lot more fleet for him to face. Um, yet he goes forth anyway. Uh, we'll have to see if there's any kind of uh, other parallels that we can draw with Quentin in the future, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, I have other minor points, like it sounds like the Doom of Valeria caused a tsunami and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is one of the points where, uh, you know, this... Sh- this Dandem Reed and everything, if they're going to try to cover both these books on the TV show, and once again, it feels like we haven't heard rumors about them casting Victorian, does that in any way make you think these chapters aren't important? I mean, that's kind of, once again, an overarching thought. I, Like I said, I'm growing to like them because he's just so freaking nuts and odd, but uh, it's, uh, it's still interesting. makes you wonder, you know, the show hasn't 
cast it, so is this a TV spoiler that you know Victorians isn't doesn't have much to do? I don't know if you guys have a thought on that. No, oh, that's interesting, Mike. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think he could be not that important to the TV show, but still important to the books at the same time. You know, I think that is totally possible. So, because I mean, I think you know they're going to have to lift some of this Danny stuff. Just they're just going to have to cut wholesale. So. You know, I don't know. Can you explain to me, give me a thumbnail of the Doom. Like how, because I didn't, I was not really clear on how that would cause a tsunami. Oh, well, this, well, what's great about this question is that this is one of those things that Martin loves to leave shrouded in mystery and the, you know, the, the kind of stories of the past. Uh, there's some theories about it, but the general way you would think about it is imagine if Pompeii, instead of just, you know, these were, these uh, volcano Pompeii destroying uh, event. Imagine if these 14 flames there kind of destroyed the whole peninsula and all of Italy just fell into the Mediterranean. And it feels like that's what happened. And I guess I could see how that would cause the tsunami and stuff. Uh, but there are all these great things. People in the chat room are talking about some of the uh, theories behind it. But so far, I guess there's no kind of true record you can go with to say, okay, this is what happened to. Yeah. Uh, In general, it was mass destruction. Right. Yeah, and I, I liken it. Uh, what was the? Um, there was an uh, an island um, in the seven. What was it? The eight seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, where there was a massive volcano and and part of the island sunk into the sea and and neighboring, uh, or it may have been further back in history, I don't know, but I think there was another event not too long ago where there was a huge tsunami and it wiped out a lot of people on the coast uh, from the island, right? I can't, it started with an S, the name of the island. I can't remember the name yeah, of it. It, it, it. it feels like he's trying to base it on kind of historical things and just blow, you know, making it a hundred times grander and crazier like I keep mentioning with uh, Pompeii, but there's, it's also certainly magic seems to tie to it and other stuff, so we shall have to see. Yeah. If he ever so truly some, explains it. So some of it is just gone, and some of it is basically kind of turned to <clears throat> like a volcanic residue, right? Because the, way they describe... the way I understand the smoking sea is where some of Valeria used to be and has gone into the ocean. Is that right, Bubba? Yeah, exactly. And what people are kind of pointing out in the chat room again is that in some ways, because it's so shrouded in mystery, one of the things Martin said is everybody who's gone to Valeria since the doom has died. And so people almost think it almost feels a bit like a, you know, nuclear bombs went off. And if you go there, you get radiation poisoning and die. You know, there's something evil happened there, for lack of a better word. And so... uh uh, we can't. We all want to know more. Your questions are the exact questions every uh, reader is uh, definitely interested in. Yeah. All right. Good. So I didn't just forget some like major chunk of book three. That's good to know. Yeah. 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 Because there's little snippets about Valeria all over the place. Um, again, and uh, I, I think uh, somebody mentioned in uh, in the chat room as well that Aziz's history of, of Westeros podcast has, has covered the subject some. Um, uh, yeah, it, Stan- it covers it, it. Sorry to interrupt, Matt. It covers it along the lines of, well, maybe this. There are hints that maybe this happened, but once again, 
that was technically, according to the timeline, about, no oh God, I hope I have this right, it was about 400 years ago. So it, in, so, you know, it, everybody who might have really experienced it got died, <laughs> including all right. these dragons and stuff, so we may never know. Right, exactly. Anything else on this chapter, guys? Uh, no. Let's uh, let's roll to our e- favorite evil uncle. All right, evil uncle eleven. We find Tyrion and Penny caring for their master, who is suffering from the pale mare. Tyrion talks with Penny and Sweets about their situation and about Daenerys, and on the way to get water, remembers the now deceased nurse and Tyrion's aid in helping the nurse pass on. He tricks the guards into letting him take Jorah and Penny with him to fetch water. Along the way, he observes the camp's activities and notes to himself about the weaknesses of dragons. He considers the what-could-have-beens about Daenerys and himself before recalling his perspective from the fighting pit, thinking of Selmy, and recalling his deduction of what was supposed to happen to him and Penny. He leads them to the camp, of the Second Sons, where they are brought before Brown Ben, where he begins to convince Plum to take those, take himself, Penny, and Jor on with this company. Where do you want to start, Mike? Uh, I'm going to start by saying that this chapter is going to be way better in the show than it is in the book. I think that uh, that had like Dinklage acting this is going to be more interesting than it is to read. It was all right. I mean, but I wasn't really that, you know, wasn't really that super excited by this one. Yeah. We had a whole bunch of really, like, pow-pow kind of chapters last week, and I think it dulls these chapters a little bit even more so than uh, we normally would think. Um, But, Bubba, let's go to a point from you, sir. Well, I guess my overriding point tied to what you guys have been talking about is lost in all the crazy fun of Danny hopping on this dragon and disappearing into who knows where. We've spent this whole book waiting for Tyrion to meet Daenerys. Like, that's been his whole journey. And as soon as he gets there, she leaves? I mean, it's like, oh, come on. (laughs) I would say uh, I got to do this uh, thing for you, Matt, just because you keep bringing it up. You tell me what happened to Nurse. Well, Tyrion took the mushrooms from his shoe and uh, put them in uh, the nurse's uh, broth there. That's exactly right. Chekhov's mushrooms, which we've been following since the beginning of this book, uh, which Tyrion picked at Illyrio's, finally came into play. Really, it's a bit interesting that they get uh, kind of used on a such a quote-unquote nothing character as this evil bastard named Nurse. But sure enough, Tyrion took care of him and quote-unquote a Lannister always paid his debts. Yeah, you know what I find that I find uh, best about that, though, uh, for me, and it's more of a metaphorical thing, or maybe uh, thinking about Tyrion's mindset, uh, because this this particular chapter is where I see the the page kind of turning for Tyrion. He, he's kind of out of that self wallowing kind of thing. Um, you know, he, he, there's a great deal of irony about the fact that lions were going to be released on a Lannister, but not only that, but it feels like, you know, okay, he doesn't need those mushrooms anymore. Uh, well, unless he saved some of them, but I, I kind of got the impression he used them all. Um, he doesn't need those mushrooms anymore. He's a man with a mission again. Uh, so that, that's what made me more hopeful for Tyrion. Uh, gosh, 
probably the first time in this whole book that I that I actually felt like, ah, Tyrion's on to something, you know, because yeah, the rest he, of the time I just – go ahead. Oh, I was just going to follow up on what you were saying, Matt, which is so true, is that for the first time in this book, he's not suicidal, it doesn't feel like. It feels right. like he's got a purpose, and he's showing compassion for such a sad mess as that Ser Jorah has become. So it's it's – uh, you know, I don't want to say he's really snapped out of it, just like you know, no one ever really snaps out of some of these things. But maybe this is our sign that there's some positiveness headed in the future here. Yeah, yeah, we can only hope. And and you know, he's got kind of got a swagger back with with Brown Ben. He's figured out why the dragons like Brown Ben, uh, as as we kind of knew before. But of course, Tyrion wouldn't know. Um, but it's interesting since the plums, I guess. Uh, or at least that family line is from the Westerlands, and maybe he would have more knowledge of their history than than others, right? Yeah, and and Brown Ben might have more knowledge of his family than mm. most families. A very interesting point as well. Uh, what else we got, guys? Well, do you well, want really to the chapter up? I have to say, that's a good point. You know, just kind of about how this is really marks a major shift. He's even kind of like joshing with the dude at the well, you know, and, mm-hmm. and making a little, like, not just, like, self-deprecating, you know, I'm going to jump off a bridge jokes, but actually, like, kind of getting back to Tyrion. That's a good point. I'm going to read this chapter again. I think I'll like it better that way. I bet you won't, but still. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would say you guys don't want to uh, pour one out for Nurse. That's fine. Uh, you, uh, what about, do you guys, you know, we had Tyrion in his darkest place at the beginning of this book. Is Ser Jorah in now his worst place, Is or can he fall even lower? I mean, this guy, this big old bear is, uh, might as well be a bearskin rug. He's so miserable right now. I feel so bad for Jorah. And yes, that came from me, folks. I really feel bad for Jorah. He's beaten badly. He's, he's broken spiritually, broken bodily. Um, and yet, uh, you know, he doesn't... It, it, I, I kind of I kind of found it fun the way that all of uh, Brown Ben's uh, cohorts only recognized him by his voice. And Brown Ben himself, you know, he's so beat up. And, and then he, he calls them out for who they a- actually are. And... Uh, uh, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, yeah, there's Jorah. So yeah, I have a shred of hope that this is the absolute bottom of the barrel for Jorah. What do you think, Mike? Uh, I'm going to go with no, because I think that uh, no matter how much you beat him up, the second time Danny kicks him out is going to be his low point. No. I don't, I don't, I'm having a hard time feeling like she's going to take him back. But I don't know. There may we may have a new Danny now that she's got a, a cool new Camaro. Oh yeah, no. I thought you were gonna say you know some women like guys with tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another thing that points to Tyrion kind of getting his swagger back, and that is these nice little callouts to the Shaga and uh, to to Bronn and such. You know, that's back at a time when Tyrion felt much more in control of himself and, 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 and was uh, obviously generally happier. Uh, and he uses those as examples as to, to obviously he's trying to get him, get his place back to me, Mike. So hopefully that'll help too. I, I mean, I don't know. How did you, how did you read those little call outs? Just as nice little shout outs to book one and book two or what? Uh, yeah. I mean, 
I didn't, they were, they make a lot more sense that way than any other way. I didn't really understand because, like, you know, not even many people in Westeros have heard of him, you know, Shaga. So it just seemed like kind of a weird thing. But that's an excellent point to to kind of, it's more about him than it is about what he's saying. Like, he's, it's more like he's talking to himself even than he is to, to Brown Band. Yeah, building himself back up. Uh, yeah. What do we? What else do we have here? Well, does anybody feel like this? Uh, you know, dragon can only be killed in its eye. A dragon can only be killed in its eye. Is this foreshadowing of how a dragon is gonna die in the series, mm. and or is this foreshadowing that Tyrion will kill one because he knows how? Mm. Wow. And that's another, you know, and just to put that in the context of your uh, perfume Seneschal being the boat, the Celasori Corin. Um, now that Tyrion is in a camp that is technically opposed to Daenerys' rule right now, then he does become someone to be aware of, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he was fighting. He was in the he was a slave owned to the guy who was fighting her. And now he seems to be going to Brown Ben Plum, who's fighting her. So uh, if you're outside the walls, you're not on her good side. Right, right. And and as far as, uh, I mean, I have no idea. Definitely hurting one of her dragons would make him uh, someone to be aware of. What do you, what do you think, Mike? Uh, I actually think that she's going to, that, I, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting about him going to Brown Ben is that I think he's going to end up, uh, getting back on her side. And, you know, that just kind of makes the whole conversation they had about never trusting a cell sword that much more interesting. I it, It's hard for me to think that he's going to, that they're going to end up really uh, against each other. Because then one of them has to die, and how's that going to work? Mm. I'm left with more questions than answers right now <laughs> as far as Tyrion goes, but... I think he's gonna. I think the easier thing is for him to end up flipping them, and maybe either replacing or maybe he saved a few mushrooms for Brown Ben. Who knows? Ah, hmm. I don't know. Are all the are all the mushrooms gone, Bubba? What do you think? I have to guess no. I mean, once again, just because they were used on such a, you know, this is the writer in me, the greater in me thinking, boy, we've been tra- you've been forcing us to keep track of these damn mushrooms all this time, and you kill a nurse a character who I couldn't remember. (laughs) That doesn't seem uh, likely. So I think he has some more, but it doesn't feel like, like you said, Matt, I don't think it's, he's going to use it on on himself anymore. Okay. All right. Yeah. Maybe I jumped the gun a little bit by saying that they're all gone and he's completely through with it, but uh, it's always good to keep that kind of thing around. You know, you you never know when you may need it. Like uh, Mike mentioned, maybe uh, Brown Ben might get some mushrooms at some point or somebody else might get some mushrooms at some point. Mushrooms for everybody. Mushrooms for all. Don't take the brown acid. Um, let's see. Anything else on this chapter? Maybe what for is? Jorah, out of uh, mercy. Oh, yeah. That's a good call. What I was, what I was going to say is that once again, I keep bringing up the TV show. Hopefully, people don't mind that so much because uh, recording this for season five has started, but. We haven't heard of anybody being cast as Penny. Nobody's cast as Brown Ben. Nobody's been cast uh, that we've heard about Nurse. So, uh, once again, you just, how streamlined is the show going to make this, you wonder? 
And uh, I think Mike pointed this out. This may be one that uh, isn't on the show at all. We'll see. We'll have to see. Uh, I mean, Tavares is not in any of these chapters, so. Right. I mean, I, you know, that's the real question is, are they going to, you know, are they going to end up riding out all the way to Marine, or is he going to drop him off somewhere the way Illyrio did? Because that's kind of the most common thing has been the conversation about uh, Viserys kind of replacing Illyrio, or Illyrio, but it seems hard for me to imagine that, you know, because at that point, then Viserys is basically out of season five by episode two, right? So it seems more likely to me that he would end up taking more of that trip. So that's, yeah, we're gonna, they're going to have to create to that out of whole cloth. Yeah. We're going to have to see, and believe it or not, we're going to get answers in a little over a month. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> we will have to see. All right. Uh, well, let's wrap up this discussion with our ranking of these chapters, uh, as we do each week. Um, Bubba, I, I kind of stole your thunder last week on the great chapters, so let me uh, let you steal my thunder on the not-so-great chapters. What a favor I'm doing you, right? Yeah, thanks Thanks so much. I'm so honored. <laughs> uh, let me just jump in. I really don't have much to say about them that we haven't already said. I think Cersei, number one, just because uh, her predicament seems the most interesting at this point. I'm going to go with uh, the Iron Suitor, number two, just because of the craziness, not that uh, it featured many characters I love or any of that stuff. I'll go John three, Queen's Guard four, and whoa, he keeps falling in last place. Evil Uncle Tyrion last. What do you guys think? Oh, Mike, <laughs> what do you got? Uh, I'm going to go Cersei one, John two. Uh, Victorian 3, Queen's Guard 4, Tyrion 5. Wait, where was the Iron Suitor? I I lost track. Iron Suitor was 3. But really, just because I really liked the end of it. Okay. Um, I'm going to go, let's see, I'm going to go Cersei 1 also. Um, Then I'm going to go John as number 2. And then I, because... I just love the symbolism of, of Tyrion turning the page, and because I've been waiting the whole book for him to do so, uh, I'm going to go Tyrion 3, then I'm going to go uh, the Queen's Guard, and then I'm going to go Victorian. Um, yeah, it's interesting that Makoro, on a first read, this order would be different, but for me on the reread, um, the, the Makoro showing up wasn't really uh, as big a deal for me, and the crazy... Um, I just come to expect it from Victorian Greyjoy. So, uh, Iron Suitor last. Time for some feedback, guys. First of all, uh, last week, Harold had submitted a new set of Westerosi death matches that we didn't get to, so let me just do these real quick because they're always fun. Um, and he wanted to clarify a couple things on, on, some, thing, on some Westerosi death matches that uh, I had made a mistake on. So he says, first to be clear... I was referring to the character that you call fake Aegon in regards to Aegon uh, Targaryen. Secondly, you guys came to a draw two weeks ago, so let's try again with Oberyn and Syrio in different matchups. So, you know the rules. Simply tell me who wins in a fight between the two combatants. Assume that everyone is healthy and alive and that it is a fair fight with equal weapons and armor, no outside interference, and magic is not a factor. Mike, Pretty Maris versus Illin Payne. 
Uh, I got to go with my boy, Ellen. I got to go with him. Bubba, are you clicking? Exactly right. Oh, boy, that is a tough one. I mean, we've seen him do stuff. We've seen nothing. Like, this is a complete blind guessing on uh, somebody we haven't seen. But with a name like Pretty Maris, it has to be good. I'm going to roll with her. Oh, so I'm forced to do a tiebreaker here. Um, darn it. I'm going to make a, a, a enemy out of one of the two of you. Who, who do I choose? Maybe I'll eeny, meeny, my moment. Um, now, I got to go I gotta go with some clucking as well, with some clicking and clacking, uh, just because uh, I've, I've loved his role with Jamie in the books, and, and it's for no other reason than that. Um, how about Carl Drogo versus Oberyn Martell? Bubba, how about you first? I don't think it's wow. close. Let me bet on the drogue. Yeah, yeah. You think he'd get under that spear and no sweat? Yeah, he he he's he wouldn't he wouldn't fall for any of that dancing, and uh, he you know he, you know Oberyn would be yelling at him, "You killed my sister!" You know he doesn't speak he doesn't speak the common tongue, so he'd just be like, "Whatever, blah, go 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 slice." <laughs> yeah. Plus, you know, Oberyn Oberyn spearing the mountain uh, didn't stop the mountain from killing Oberyn. So I, I and and Call in the TV show certainly didn't get uh, hurt that much by the cut. So uh, I, I'm thinking that that that, that uh, Oberyn wouldn't have much of a chance even after that first jab. So what do you think, Mike? Uh, I'm going to have to go, I mean, this is, I guess that's the question. Did Oberyn win that fight or didn't he? I don't know that that's necessarily clear. And Khal Drogo doesn't wear any armor, right? So he could pretty easily catch a bit of uh, viper poison. So I'm going to go with Khal Drogo wins at first and Oberyn wins like two weeks later. <laughs> Good okay. call. Good call. But okay. remains dead. He he has to, It's a posthumous victory. Yeah. Now, uh, Harold being the god that he has, has given Jamie his hand back. Okay? So we're talking, we're talking uh, book one, Serial Pharrell versus a two-handed Jamie. What do you think, Mike? Uh, I'm giving it to Serio because he's jacking, he's faceless, he's a cat, he's a water dancer. I I don't know. He's too much. He's, <laughs> I think he might be able to out-trick him. He doesn't fight like a knight. Okay. What about you, Bubba? Yeah, there's a part of me that's going to go with Mike on this one. I, I thought, you know, if you're teaching it, you better know how to do it. So that's how I'm going to roll. It. It doesn't seem right, but uh, to be honest, on the page, we never saw either of them really do great fighting, from what I know. So a guy who can take out people with a wooden sword, though, i got to give that some due. And so I'm rolling with the bravo, see. Yeah, I'm going with the old axiom that if those who can't do teach, and therefore I'm going to go with <laughs> Jamie. Uh, but I already lose, so it doesn't matter. We have a definitive winner there. Final match here, Varys versus Zaro Zohandaxos. <laughs> <laughs> no magic, but that doesn't mean no poison, right? Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Fair fight. Uh, equal weapons and armor. Uh, let's go with Bubba. What do you think, brother? Oh, boy. You know what? The thing is, is that the fight might go one way, but then several years later, uh, Zaro's Zohan Doxos is going to end up in a box <laughs> and Paris will have the final victory. 
What do you think, Mike? Uh, I'm giving. I think he's gonna. I think I'm giving it to to Zara. I think he's gonna find. Uh, yeah, I think he's gonna cut him. All right, all right. Well, uh, we'll just go with. Barry's that. always and, seemed like he had soft skin, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so we'll go. We'll go unanimous on that. And uh, Harold, uh, his uh, original. Uh, 32 Westerosi Deathmatch Tournament continues at the website. Uh, you can find it in a tab uh, called uh, Westerosi Deathmatch for book readers only. Um, here are the results of round one, which was Ned Stark defeated Victorian Greyjoy, Brienne of Tarth defeated Asha Greyjoy, Maya Stone defeated Mira Reed, Sir Duncan the Tall just walloped poor Sir Jorah, poor Jorah, as <laughs> Serial Pharrell edged out over in Martell uh, Penny the Dwarf absolutely destroyed Sweet Robin, Aaron of the Vale. Uh, Maester Aaron, uh, Maester Aemon, uh gave Walder Frey a complete shellacking. Uh, not as badly though as, as Samuel Tarley like just cooked hot pie. Wow, listen to me and all these <laughs> references. Uh, Barristan Selmy, he beat Arya Hotel. Uh, Euron Greyjoy just pummeled Ramsay Snow. Uh, Leaf, the child of the forest, dispenses with the waif. Uh, Gendry narrowly escaped with his victoria uh, with his victory over Fagon Targaryen. Uh, Cersei Lannister uh, just made sure that there was absolutely nothing left. Solis Baratheon uh, and Jaqen Hagar moves on from his match, meet, defeating Bronn, and uh, Reek beat out Jojen Reed. Uh, also, Nymeria the direwolf takes a bite out of Stranger the horse. Ha ha! So there we go. I'm all Jack Gleason today. Uh, how about uh, you guys take a look at round two? Ned Stark versus Maya Stone, Brienne of Tarth versus Sir Duncan the Tall, Serial Pharrell versus Maester Aemon, Penny the Dwarf versus Samuel Tarley, Barristan Selmy versus Leaf the Child of the Forest, Euron Greyjoy versus Gendry, Cersei Lannister versus Reek, Jack and Hagar versus Nymeria the direwolf. And remember, you can find the bracket and uh, the results from each round at that same tab page, just so you know I'm not lying about who won. Uh, and I closed the poll, so we're, we're moving on to this round. You have until this coming Friday to vote for round two, and then we'll give you an update on that. And we'll go, is this a Sweet 16? I guess this is a Sweet 16. We'll go on to the Elite Eight after this. So, uh, Are you sure uh, that that bracket shouldn't be rejiggered by weight class? Because I feel like round two wasn't really thought through very well. I don't know. Uh, you know what? I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I. I. We didn't seed any of these. We just took the, the ones and I. I just threw them. I just threw them on the bracket as as I read them off of Harold's emails. So that's that's why we have such strange matches this time around. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It makes for some interesting matches. I mean, uh, who's going to vote for Maester Aemon versus Cyril Pharrell? Come on. Someone's going to, right? Um, but, yeah. So, there we go. No seating. No seating involved, folks. I, disclaim, I, I am not the NCAA committee. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, how about an email from Liz who says, Matt, thanks for your podcast and this tandem read. It really helps me with my three-hour commute every day and makes me smile. Uh, thank you. Uh, these last chapters you were reviewing were exciting, and the book is finally coming to an end, and we are getting some cliffhangers to choke on until the next 20 years or so until the winds of winter comes out. Your crew is great, even Bubba. 
Thanks to Susan. Oh, darn, too bad Susan's not here. Thanks to Susan for being in the show and bringing a sane woman's perspective to balance out Bubba's whining. Aw. Your appreciation (laughs) of the finer points of world building is necessary. Off with the skip ahead's head. Uh, as I was so excited when you pointed out the penny tree connection to the Duncan egg, unless we forget the werewood tree is dead and there are all those ravens and they have the blood of the first men in them, uh, the trees that is. Uh, also, the hostage that took that Jamie took, a bookish son, uh, has an opportunity to tell, to send intel to the Brotherhood without banners or the Blackfish, possibly. Just saying. And then, Mike, you make me feel like a virgin when I hear your reactions as you are a first-time reader. <laughs> um, she continue, First of all, Bubba, any, re, any response to the shellacking you got there? Uh, boy, Liz was tough on me. I, you know what, Liz? Let me tell you, if you keep doing this, you know what we're going to do to your email? Skip ahead! Oh. No, but I'm kidding. I, listen, I love everybody's feedback. I hope people... Love these real boring chapters that I ate. <laughs> and so it's good to know that people do, and uh, this is why your feedback's important. Please keep writing it. Right on. Well, the reason she, she's really writing, she says, is uh, for some Maester Lewin therapy. You asked in the beginning of the podcast how everyone would feel about the show surpassing the books. I started reading the books around 2004-ish. I can't claim to be the longest fan, Have can't claim the longest fan status, but I've been part of some serious George R. R. Martin waiting. How does one manage? I don't know. Early in my addiction, it didn't seem as hard to wait for the next book, maybe because Martin's track record wasn't so bleak then, with only one very late book, and then he promised that A Dance with Dragons would be out a year after A Feast for Crows. Well, we know how that went. I will watch the show as it continues because I'm incapable of resisting anything that has to do with A Song of Ice and Fire, even though this season we are going... They are going patch face with the storyline, as far as I can tell. <laughs> Dave and Dan are doing a great job. I have much respect for the adaptation and the quality of the work as, that everyone does on the show. Even though I do yell and scream at my sons as the credits are rolling and throw my bottle of mead at the TV screen for all the changes and omissions. Reading something is, very perso- is a very personal experience for me, and when you've read the stories as much as I have, they become as much a part of your consciousness. I never said I was normal. Uh, they are internalized, they are intimately and emotionally linked with characters, storylines, mysteries, prophecies. They are your alternate universe. I wouldn't change this obsession for anything, and I think the great George R. and I thank the great George R. Martin for creating them. But seven hells, George. As much as I like your writing redemption arcs, you should think about one for yourself. You've hooked us with your story crack, strung us out on the worst ever dry spells, and left us drooling and shaking with anticipation of your next book. But you bastard, you sold out. You sold your story to HBO without having told your full tale, and I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive you for that. This is the crux. You can't blame HBO. You can't blame David Dan. You can't blame his love of the Giants and Jets. You can't blame the Green Chilies in Santa Fe. We can only blame the man himself. I'm sure when he made the deal with HBO back in uh, 06 or 07, I believe, he thought there was no way in the world that the show would surpass his writing. Personally, I knew that when the show came out, he would never complete the story before the show was complete, and now we do know it to be true. George R. Martin spoke the other day about getting a season 8 or 9. In the words of Bubba, not going to happen. I've fallen in love with Westeros and these characters, 
but the fact is that I'm going to see what happens to the main characters on TV before I can read their fates in George's beautiful prose, and that makes me mad at George and not at Dave and Dan or HBO. I bet they're none too happy either. The complexity of the story is has spun hundreds of websites and podcasts into obsessed fandoms for this very complicated, brilliant, quote-unquote, song, and the type of detail, and that type of detail needs time. But why, George, have you let your readers down and let someone else tell the finish of your story without even the excuse of your own death? My goodness, this is bad on George. I will <laughs> never forgive George for this, but like I said earlier, I will be unable to stop myself from watching it all play out on TV. Whew, glad I'm glad I finally got that off my chest. Sorry for the length of my rat. Yeah, Sammy has, uh, she's shaking her iPod and she's cursing you, Liz, for the length of that email. But I had to read all of it. Um, any thoughts about that? I mean, I don't think that changes my opinion about the fact that I'm just going to enjoy both mediums and, and, and um, in, in the respect that they are written. Um, let, let me ask you this, though, Mike. Is there a chance now that the show... Maybe George has given these guys a bullet point. I heard an interesting point the other day um, made that uh, might that incite George to make things even that much more different so that uh, book readers get something, um, maybe not the very end game, which I think will spoil book readers, but um, maybe the journeys will be so drastically different uh, from the way the television series plays out that it will be really enjoyable to, uh, for book readers to read and they'll still have something that they can go, heh <laughs> to the TV viewers on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about that for the last couple episodes. Is this character going to be in the show? Is that storyline going to be in the show? There are going to be... I mean, how many characters are they really going to finish off their their stories in the show? I mean, a dozen? How many characters are there in the book that are going to have to have their, their bows tied? A hundred? <laughs> I mean, so I think the worst-case scenario... Let's say that, you know, the, the epilogue of the final book is the exact same scene as the last scene in the television series. Like, you know, this is a worst-case scenario. Still, there's going to be so much more to take care of in the books than there is in the shows that I think it's still going to be... I think there's still going to be a lot to it. I think it's still going to be really great. Plus, it's going to be, like, 10 years after the show is over. So you'll be, you'll have forgotten all about the show. You'll have a chance to go back through all of the books. It's going to be fine. That's where this, like how long it takes, that's going to end up being the advantage of it. You'll have totally forgotten the show. Wow. Will what you happened totally at the end of Lost? Nobody remembers what happened at the end of Lost. You remember the pilot better than the final episode. Oh, I wish that was true. <laughs> hey, can I say that Liz sounds like a good follower of, of her Grace King Joffrey? And Liz, I hope you're downloading every Joffrey podcast so you can in, you can use that strength of your conviction to worship His Grace. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say that uh, you know while she while she shellacked you at the first part of her email, uh, the second part of her email sounded a lot like you, sir. So um, she's coming the, from the best. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, I, think, I just have to say also, just if I can, from a creator's perspective, I'm really excited to see, you know, because what you take out is a technical choice. Like, there's an artistic, you know, kind of decision-making process, too, but that's a technical choice. 
at this point, making this show has a lot to do, you know, with kind of, it's more like arranging and conducting music than it is like writing a song, you know. So they are, I am really interested to see, because this will be my first season watching as someone who's read the book. So I'm really interested to see what they choose and why they choose it, you know, and to kind of have those conversations about why you think something was or wasn't in there. And I think that stuff is really illuminating in the same way that tonight, you know, talking about kind of, you know, the dilemma that he was in after Danny flies off where you've got to impart all this information. But if we're seeing Danny, seeing Danny is not where we need to, where we want to hear about the shame paint and all this other crap. You know, we want to hear about the dragon now. We're back with Danny. So that that makes that chapter more interesting for me and having that conversation. I'm looking forward to being able to do that with the show. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I, I can totally see that for sure. I, here's another email, because I've got a lot of emails. Uh, here's another email from John, which takes kind of a polar opposite stance of, uh, well, I don't know if it does really, but, but it, it takes kind of a different stance of Liz, but still manages to bash Bubba in a certain way. Uh, <laughs> I came across uh, John in Amsterdam says I came across podcast Winterfell by the way the amazing and much missed cripples bastards and broken things come back again Ken uh, here here uh, I haven't been reading along with you this tandem but I've been with you every step of the way and enjoying every word of it except for one boring George's original plan for the feast for crows and dance with dragons was precisely to skip ahead considering how many times we've heard Bubba say that phrase I would have expected this to come up more uh, before or more often, as was in the case of of an offhanded mention before. Um, George's original plan after A Storm of Swords was to start the story again roughly five years into the future. Um, the intervening period was to be described as some sort of prelude at the beginning of the next book to be called The Dance with Dragons. Um, and he says, Seven Hells, you should have witnessed the uproar. Yeah, this is all stuff that that we know. Uh, I don't. We have talked a little bit about it at the podcast, so I'm going to skip ahead um, to this um, to his next point um, to his summarizing. A Feast for Crows was going to be a prelude, and in my opinion, a Dance with Dragons was likely going to start at the moment of Daenerys untying the Marinese knot and her brother, or perhaps the Blackfire cousin uh, Aegon invading Westeros. I base this opinion on the title in the context uh, now knowing about Aegon, but the contents that, that aborted sequel don't matter so much as the fact that we are still waiting to read most of the plot that would have gone into it. I hope we get to discuss this further after the next book is released and we find out how we've been waiting and we find out what we've been waiting for. But I'm curious to hear opinions already. Do you think George made the right decision by filling in all the details that lead us to where we are or would you prefer the original sequel? Do you think it? Do you think you would care, even if it's just to be done with, right, even if it's just to be done with it about Marine or Dorne or Sam's days at the Citadel, let alone in interrelations of the Greyjoys, if you had never read anything about them? Well, thanks to my reading, I'm sure nobody understood that question. Uh, Bubba, would, would you have preferred to skip ahead to the five years, or would you have? Uh, do you do you want these details? Well, when uh, we have mentioned this on the podcast before, way back in some of those beginning chapters uh, of this reread, but what I would say is that when Martin explained it, I think I understood his dilemma, and in the end, 
even though if maybe this isn't the book I necessarily wanted, I think his reasons for not skipping ahead that he explained were pretty good in that some uh, some characters you could do that with. Like Arya, you could do that with because uh, she's just pretty much gone to school. So you could jump ahead and, you know, she went to school. Now she's here. Where some, because of the, you know, it's it's hard to think about this now after reading all these hundreds and thousands of pages, is that the third book did leave on kind of some epic cliffhangers to like, well, wait a minute, what does happen right after this? And one of the things was, of course, you know, what would happen in uh, King's Landing right after, you know, this this uh, murder of uh, the Hand of the King went down. And there were certain stories where he, he felt like he couldn't do it. And I kind of respect that. I kind of think that a lot of viewers, uh, you know, and especially the Lady Stoneheart part, you know, did want to, well, what, you know, she we were going to wait for her five years to do something? Now, admittedly, who knows what she's done so far, except kill phrase and now set up this dilemma for Brienne and Jamie. But uh, in the end, I think he may, uh, in the end, I agree with his choice. Sorry to be so long-winded. Right on. Mike, uh, would you have preferred to skip ahead five years, or is this good for you? Well, I mean, it's, you know, some characters. I guess I just, I guess if I feel differently about some of the characters. Like you said, it would be easy to skip Arya ahead, but I've really enjoyed seeing her go to school. You know, Brienne's story I could have done with less of. Um, but just, you know, generally speaking, I think I've. I mentioned this before. I think I would have reorganized it and, and moved Danny's introduction later. But you know, you may not even get to get to later if you do it that way. You know, so it's kind of hard to question his judgment in that sense. You know, so right. overall, I mean, I've enjoyed the books quite a bit. You know, right. so okay. he just needs to. I wish he was friends with Hunter Thompson and had a big coke stash and a good typewriter ribbon, but that's not how that's going down. Well, you would think that that would be the whole email, but he's on to point two of several. So we're going to continue on here, uh, and I am trying to summarize a little bit, uh, Sammy, here. Uh, I don't believe that George intends or desires you to like every chapter or even every POV character. I really love Ken's perspective of Catelyn's POVs being kind of a finger in the eye to the traditional fantasy fanboys. I think it's important to keep in mind that George absolutely positively loves messing with us. Uh, consider your original feelings about Jamie or Tyrion, or even Ellen Payne, who I agree somehow endears me with this clucking. Even Cersei becomes more sympathetic once we get in her head and see how deep uh, that particular well is drilled. Uh, this connects to uh, even this connects to a point about Brienne. Even the most Hardcore, my even the most hardcore fantasy brothers, boys are going to feel something if Brienne lives or dies in the next book. Considering George loves messing with the axiom, I expect I will be the one rejoicing at the butt hurt fans when she survives. But hey, you never know. Um, butt hurt is a feeling though too. So George wins again. And he'll win, too, if he does the opposite and leaves me weeping with a knife in my gut. It's happened before, after all. Seriously, though, if we end up kicking butt left and right in the future, that also wouldn't be satisfying to me without having gotten lost with her in the woods in A Feast for Crows. So I think there's just no way to, to get to a fulfilling conclusion without having some chapters which drive you crazy 
some characters who never seem to make the right decision, and some plot lines that haven't shown their true worth yet. Um, by the way, my heart basically exploded when Mike brought this up in the context of Daenerys' chapter last week. Yes, you are supposed to feel frustrated. You are supposed to feel sad. You are supposed to be wanting it to be anything but what it is. Generating that kind of effect essentially requires creating something difficult to read. And if, if and when Daenerys gets herself together and breaks this stalemate, we're supposed to be overcome with relief. It takes time to set up those kinds of stakes. Consider how stoked Bubba was when Bran finally met the three-eyed crow. You can't just base that kind of reward on nothing. Rather, it costs you quite a few chapters, which end you with wishing, even frustrated, that you knew where the given character is actually headed. Otherwise, it may be a, a, well be a summary on a Wikipedia when you finally get there. As far as the emotional impact is concerned, Baba, tell me how glad you will be to be done with Marine. Uh, well, I want to say I'll be very glad, but I just want to correct maybe this impression I gave off. I, unlike some people, I never had trouble with those brand chapters. So, yes, I, I love that he got to the Three-Eyed Raven, but it wasn't because like, I felt constantly bored by them. Sorry. Right. That was Harold that's constantly bored by Bran. Uh, we re, uh, he reminds us in every email. Um, third point, the pace of George's writing is often lamented by those who, from my perspective, have no right to complain. In fact, their very complaints are groundless. The first three books were released between 1996 and 2000. The Storm of Swords was released the very next year after A Clash of Kings, 1999 and 2000. But no one complains about George's pace of writing uh, seems to mention this, let alone appreciate this fact. Um, I, I think that perhaps for me, in terms of that point, it, it's about the fact that George got himself to a place where it took more time to figure out what to do. We've all talked about the Maronese not, right, and how much of a problem that's been for him. Um, maybe he can do A Dream of Spring shortly after Winds of Winter. Um, but there, it's this middle ground um, that can take the longest to do. Does anybody agree with that? Or do they think yeah. that George is just, uh, is just stalling or, or not, not writing as fast as he used to? Well, I think, you know, you get to a point where you just flow, flow, flow. And obviously, these last two books, he hasn't been that. He, he, I think he has had, as Ian Trone wrote in the chat room, I think he has had writer's block at times. And you know, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, is it is it? Are we fair to complain? Uh, no, but uh, you know, we want what we want. There's no uh, doubt about that. Yeah. But when you're uh, making anything, I mean, any any creative project starts with like an idea. You know, just kind of this outline, like, oh, you know, I want to talk about these. You know, it's kind of this is what happens to this or that character. And you you. More often than not, the end of the story is somewhere built in that initial idea. Maybe you don't know exactly what the end is going to be, but you know generally what the end is going to be when you know basically what the beginning is going to be. But there's, you know, I mean, the devil is in the details. That's a saying for a reason, you know. So I do think that there's, you know, I don't know, maybe he's not writing as fast or whatever the case may be, but I do think that you can get, you know, well into a project before you understand what all of the pitfalls are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes, you know, and that's that's with 
technical things, you know, and that kind of stuff too. And, you know, you don't really know exactly what it looks like until you're in post-production, you know, that kind of stuff. But just with storytelling itself, especially when you have that many characters overlapping each other, you know, he said that, that without having, you know, the people who did History of Westeros to reach out to and double-check his timeline, you know, to have them do the math for him, that he would have gone off the rails. I think that's kind of a natural part of the creative process. I think we'll see after, you know, I think we'll see after the knot is untied to a certain extent. You know, like you said, if, if you know, the last book comes out shortly after the next one, then I think we'll, you know, that'll be a clue of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, your final point, I don't think that anyone should worry too much about show spoilers versus the books. This position starts with the trustee, George will always take the road which messes with us the most axiom. From that starting point, I believe you will make the most chances to defy at least some, if not many of the expectations set up by the ending or even upcoming season of a show. Consider how much has already changed from the books to the end of season four. Uh, Arya is seen with is seen both at the Vale and by Brienne. Jamie and Tyrion part on good terms. Varies will be in Essos. Jamie and Bronn will have a subplot, perhaps. I haven't been following the castings, but I seem to remember that they are opening up Dorne, but dropping the island Isle, uh, Iron Isles. Balon Greyjoy isn't even dead. Asha isn't even Asha. <laughs> Rob Stark's in utero offspring murdered brutally while inside Talisa, while the, the chance pregnancy is left open in the books. We may not even get Manderly in the show for strangers' sake. My hope is that Dave and Dan uh, and George understand the opportunities and responsibilities they have to each other, to either of the mediums that they are working with, and will conclude their stories appropriately. Maybe the final moment will be shared between the two, but I'm even hoping for something more like an Akira film adaptation. Akira is a famous enemy which, based on an epic scale, which is based on an epic scale manga. Without spoiling, it's safe to say the ending of the film occurs roughly halfway through the course of the manga, with plenty of differences along the way. But thematically, the film reflects the manga very well, and also, by its very existence and, and differences, it does, throws an interesting contrast into the discussion of those themes. Only time will tell, but of course, that phrase, whose wisdom I've gotten used to, Oh, let's see. Only time will tell, of course, but that's a phrase whose wisdom I've gotten used to after being a fan of the Song of Ice and Fire series all these years. It's been a great ride so far. Uh, agreed. Uh, on on the final point, I, I think we already talked about that. Um, let's go to uh, quickly an email from Cal. Well, I'd like to express thanks for having my name brought up so many times in regards to world building. I have to admit that I find Aria chapters in these two books nearly insufferable. I can't really put my finger on what it is that I dislike so much, but even when I have to listen to them, I consider skipping ahead. Rather than anything directly related to this week's chapters, I'd like to make a few comments. In regards to the fray pie, I really hope that we get a scene in the next book with Wyman Manderley and some fray in which Manderley is being pressed for information regarding the missing phrase, and his response is, did you look in your chamber pot after the wedding? (laughs) Uh, In regards to Lady Stoneheart, I remember being out of my mind with happiness at her reveal at the end of book three, 
but from then on have felt every interaction or mention of her has been super lackluster. I honestly feel that George thought it would be cool to have this character in there, publish the book, and then realize, crap, I have to do something with her now. I hope I'm proved wrong about her importance, but I feel that her being left out of the show was a good move. If she had appeared at the end of season three, it would have taken so much of the impact away from the Red Wedding, and the end of season four is just too late. I want to fill in my role as a little bit who is obsessed with the atmosphere and world building and applaud everyone about their talk of a ghost in Winterfell. The atmosphere of Winterfell at this point in time, the hopelessness and how just dank and horrible the place seems under the rule of the Boltons is enthralling. Keep up uh, looking forward to listening to this week's podcast. Keep up the good work. Baba, you bumpy stink boy. I love you. <laughs> oh, boy, Cal, I loved that email, too. And even when you disagree with us, we love emails. And it seems like it only people people only disagree with me. But, hey, still give us emails. We want you to disagree. And I certainly don't want people to be uh, feel the frustration that I feel at times. Right on. Uh, very good. Uh, uh, finally, last email. Uh, email from Sarvesh. You said, I had a thought about Lady Dustin that I would like based, like to share based on your prior discussion. You mentioned that Brandon Stark must have been uh, stringing her along, given that it was established that he was promised to Catelyn Tully. In that sense, it's understandable that she hates Cat. But why hate Ned Stark? Because he didn't do anything to bring back the bones of her husband she didn't dearly love in the first place. Hate him to the point that she wants to plunder the crypts of Winterfell? Hatred so strong that she doesn't send troops to rob and supports Roos? All of this just for Dustin's bones? It seems like an extreme reaction. So here's some math. Actually, to me, it seems more like speculation than math. But anyway, maybe she loved Ned Stark and not Brandon. There is no talk about if Ned was betrothed to anyone in particular. Um... But when Brandon died and Ned had to choose between honor, marrying Cat for Robert's Rebellion, and love, honor-bound Ned Stark married Cat and shunned Dustin. This would be a much better reason to hate Ned. Alternatively, I don't know how the timeline would fit here. If Ned and Barbara Dustin had a child, could he be Jon Snow? As much as I am a believer in the R plus L equals J theory, uh, this would be one of those things that surprises everyone and gives us someone who will support John if he is going to do anything like rallying the troops or facing the Boltons. End of email. Uh, any thoughts about Lady Dustin's hatred for Ned Stark, just in general, first? Well, I guess what I would say is that, you know, uh, you know, some of these listeners like Liz hate me, and I haven't promised to marry them, so who knows, you know, why Lady Dustin <laughs> would get some hate in her. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Mike, any thoughts on it? Uh, no, I like that idea. That's good. I mean, I think the whole, you know, Ned was choosing honor thing is more reasonable than the child thing, but it's good speculation. Good speculation. All right, and that does it for the feedback. Guys, I want to thank you for, again, taking an enormous amount of your Monday night to spend time talking with me, uh, mostly uh, about uh, these chapters and the feedback. Of course, we, we have kind of a brief news section this week. But uh, thanks again for joining me. Very much appreciated. Next week, folks, we'll be reading 
John 12, the discarded knight, the spurned suitor, the griffin reborn, and the sacrifice. By the title names, uh, other than John 12, I can only guess uh, who the griffin reborn might be. But other than that, it's kind of hard to tell who we're going to be talking about next week. Bubba, you can tell us, however, about the Joffrey of Podcasts and how to contact you on Twitter or the interwebs to talk about A Song of Ice and Fire. Thank you so much. Thank you to Matt for hosting this great podcast. Thanks to all the listeners for listening to our super long podcast. Thanks to everybody in the chat room for sticking around and being great. Everybody, you can reach me on Twitter. Liz, I'll accept your proposal at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. And Mike from the Captain Punishment Adventure Hour has uh, also ridden the storm of long podcasts as of late uh, very admirably. And uh, thanks so much for joining me. How can people talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire and tell us about Captain Punishment? Uh, I am on Twitter at Fifth Column Film, F-I-F-T-H-C-O-L-U-M-N-F-I-L-M. And uh, we are in editing for the new Captain Punishment, so should be mixing by the end of the week. And I'm uh, looking forward to having it out. So it's going to be good stuff. It's uh, Game of Thrones spoof in the new one, so it should be fun. Right on. So be sure to check it out, folks. And we do want to thank the folks in the chat who came in, and they suffer these long podcasts along with us as well. Uh, Joffrey the Just, Ion Throne, uh, Mandatory, who else? Fizzlehoff. Fizzlehoff. Uh, oh, Jay and Jack was in here. I'll be darned. I wonder if it was Jay or Jack. Who, who, who handles their talk show? Is it Jack? Uh, possibly. Um, and uh, several guests as well. So uh, guests up to guest 11. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Here's Axel Foley to tell you how to join me in you know, sending your hate and what have you. And we'll see you next time on Podcast Winterfell. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.